0: Greetings, Dr. Beckett. Welcome to the Quantum Leap Podcast. Theorizing that one could time travel within his own lifetime, Dr. Sam Beckett led an elite group of scientists into the desert to develop a top-secret project known as Quantum Leap. Pressured to prove his theories or lose funding, Dr. Beckett prematurely stepped into the project accelerator.
1: Himself in the past,
0: suffering from partial amnesia and facing a mirror image that was not his own. Fortunately, contact with his own time was maintained through brainwave transmissions with Al, the project observer, who appeared in the form of a hologram that only Dr. Beckett can see and hear. Trapped in the past, Dr. Beckett finds himself leaping
1: from life to life, putting things right that once went wrong, and hoping each time that his next leap will be
2: the leap home you are listening to the quantum leap podcast this is episode 32 the leap home part two
3: vietnam
4: Whatever it takes to save my brother's life technically you're not here to save your brother don't give me that crap al what do you want me to lie to you I'll tell you the truth so at least you know what you're up against you are a singleman second class herbert williams but your buddies all call you magic i think i'm their talisman you are they haven't taken a casualty since you came aboard
0: until tomorrow until tomorrow tomorrow your brother thomas killed and i'm not here to change that how I got the info isn't important. What I do with it is, I'm a photojournalist, Magic. There's not a good journalist who wouldn't sell their soul for a Pulitzer. Since your mission tomorrow is Pulitzer material, I want you to tell your Lieutenant Beckett that you've got that magic feeling about me. People eat. I know. But
4: uh, any hole around here over three feet deep fills with water. But you know, you, you, you made a promise. Don't you think you ought to try and keep it? I got a mission to leave. Now, are you sure about Maggie? I just take my life on it. Good. Because that's what you'll be doing. Staking your life on it, Magic. And ours. What the hell I got repatriated in five years
3: You could have been free
4: I was free Up here I was always free Hey Hey, it's midnight It's April the 9th and I'm still alive Hey (laughs) Thanks to you, little brother
2: Hello, and welcome back to the Quantum Leap Podcast. I'm Albie. And I'm Heather. And today we have a great show for you. We're talking about the second episode of season three, The Leap Home Part 2, Vietnam. And we have two great guests, Andrea Thompson, who played Maggie Dawson, and David Newsom, who played Sam's brother, Tom. So that's really cool.
5: Yeah. You talk to a lot of people in this episode.
2: Yeah. Uh, while we were watching, I was like, I talked to him, I talked to her, I talked to him. It's pretty cool.
5: You're so fancy. Heather, The Leap Home Part 2, First Impressions. Are we talking first first impressions from the first time I watched it? Sure, that'll work. Okay. I know it's not like you don't, don't ask me that question every time. <laughs> I didn't see the Al thing coming at all. I didn't pay any attention to who the POWs were. And I think that was the point. I realized why MIA was part of this trilogy at the end of this episode. I was in shock, I think, the first time I watched it. And I think this was the toughest one. The ending of this one was the toughest one, I think, for me to watch. It was a really, really complex episode. And I had no idea where it was going. Once I kind of knew that they weren't going to help Beth, even though I wanted them to, and then he wasn't going to be able to help his family because he couldn't help Beth. There was kind of a pattern going so this episode i figured he wasn't going to save his brother i didn't expect him to save his brother and i didn't expect al to be as involved in the story i mean obviously he was involved in the war but i didn't expect it to be that close and now that i look back it's obvious but i didn't see that coming at all and i think that was on purpose i don't know how you would have known and the second time i watched it i tried to see if i could have figured out it was al in her camera shot, in that scene. Because I was like, how did I miss that it was him? How did I not see? Because in the picture, you can totally tell it's a younger Al. But they don't really pause long enough for you to be able to see. So obviously, it was something that...
2: In the episode, while she's taking the picture, they kind of do the pause to make it look like the photograph. But that's after he's already turned around.
5: Plus, it's not very clear. It's kind of blurry. I just figured he was... Empathizing with them because he was a POW, but I didn't actually think that that was Sam's chance to save him. But I don't know. It's like crazy because if they had told Beth that he was a POW and he wasn't dead, how would that have changed this episode?
2: That's a good point. I think that speaks to the great writing of this episode and Quantum Leap as a whole, to where they can give you all that setup for three episodes and you not connect the dots until the time is perfect. And then your brain goes back and connects all those dots at once. And you get the kind of chills and goosebumps and the emotion. And it all comes together when you see that photograph at the end of the episode.
5: It's a cool thing that Dean Stockwell's been around, I guess, a while that that picture was there, because that's obviously a younger Dean Stockwell, right? It has to be an actual photo.
2: Yeah, it looked a little photoshopped before Photoshop.
5: It could have been a little bit doctored,
2: but to put him in there. Right. They didn't have that shot of the three POWs in
5: him. Right, but that's a younger version of his face. They could go all the way back to when he was a little kid, a little
2: boy. Oh, yeah, I know. <laughs> this is Al back in the 20s.
5: Right. But I didn't expect the ending to focus on Al. I thought it was just going to be Sam and his brother. And there was a lot of moments in the episode where I don't think they followed the rules as much as they normally do. Like at the end when Tom says, thanks, little brother. Like I wanna question that, but I can't <laughs> but I know that it's just there just because to make it a whole circle of the whole part one, part two, bring them together. And that was really awesome. I really liked the three parter. I liked it. It was very emotional. All three episodes were pretty emotional. The second one not so much because it's kind of in between and you know once it ends that he gets to see his brother again. So it's kind of like it puts you on pause for a second. But yeah, it was was a really good trilogy. I I didn't know how it was going to go because M.I.A. was so sad at the end. But I'm still worried that Al's dead because of the way he was dressed in that whole episode. (laughs) That was my thought the first time I watched it through the first viewing. I thought once we got to the end, I was like, oh my gosh, she's dressed so nicely. Like, what if that's it? Like, what if that's like his funeral outfit and he's a ghost now? And I couldn't. I just... Very interesting. It's possible. Well, he's in the Christmas episode that we did. So I'm hoping that that means (laughs) that he's still around. I never thought that that would be a spoiler to have him in a future episode. But I definitely was worried at the end, like, wait, is he dead? Did they never? But he said he was repatriated five years later. But what I don't understand is I was always free up here. He talks in MIA about how tortured he was and how he held on To everything with Beth. I mean, I guess that's what he meant. But when he says that he was always free up here, doesn't it make you make it sound like he was dead? Like he was... I don't know. I'm so confused about that whole part. There's so many questions I have about this episode.
2: If this was the series finale, I'm sure they could have gone that way and he would have been dead. Right. That would have been very cool, I think.
5: Well, not cool. I don't want him to die. Not cool
2: that he died, but a a cool moment in the writing. Who knows? Something that Sam may have done or Maggie may have done. Maybe. Well, I'm pretty sure that Al didn't see Maggie the first time around, but he looked back at her, and saw her, made eye contact with her, knew she was there. Yeah. So that might have had a change. You never know. Little things mean a lot when you're talking about time travel. I'm sure we'll talk about that and a lot more after the episode recap.
5: This is season three, episode two, The Leap Home, part two, Vietnam. Written by Donald P. Belisario and directed by Michael Zinberg. Original broadcast date, October 5th, 1990. Picking up right where part one left off, after Sam wins Elkridge High School's Thanksgiving basketball tournament, Al reluctantly tells Sam that his brother Tom is still killed in Vietnam. Sam calls out to Tom at the exact moment that he leaps, so he is still calling out when he lands in a swamp in Vietnam. His call alerts his Leapy's platoon, and they start firing their machine guns at enemies who would have ambushed them, thereby saving the platoon. Sam immediately hides underwater, and when he resurfaces, he realizes he is standing alongside Tom, who asks him how he knew they were there. Sam, having been on the brink of despair, realizing he has left to Tom's squad in Vietnam, is now filled with hope. They fly back to base along a river in a military helicopter, while one of their crew rides behind on water skis. And Sam tells everyone how happy he is that everyone is still alive. Tom says, it's thanks to you, Magic. At the same time, their crew member's commander, Colonel Grimwald, is being interviewed by Maggie Dawson an American journalist and photographer who wishes for nothing more than to win a Pulitzer Prize. When the crew sees her, they immediately make advances as she has the biggest, roundest camera lenses in all of Vietnam and play a prank where they make it seem like the water skier has drowned because she distracted them. So she plays along with their flirting and offers to buy them all the first round of drinks that night. Meanwhile, the commander tells Tom that he has been escorting Maggie on an aerial tour of the Delta, but that he has a special op for his crew, and that Maggie will be going along. At their survival party, Al arrives and reminisces about the survival parties he had been on during his service, although they never had beer or anyone who looked like Maggie on theirs. Al gives Sam some tips on how to fit in with the seals by not wearing underwear and and leaving the top button undone, and informs Sam that it is April 7th, the day before Tom dies. Sam is single-man second-class Herbert Williams, but known as Magic because he is the squad's talisman, having survived several near-death experiences and the squad not having had a single casualty since he joined. That is, until the next day, when two members are wounded and Tom is killed. Sam is determined to do what it takes to keep Tom alive, but Al says that he might not be there to save Tom. Ziggy thinks Sam is there to make sure the mission succeeds, and sometimes people die on successful missions. Unfortunately, they have no idea what the objective of the mission even was, let alone what went wrong, because the information is classified top secret and is buried in a Pentagon computer that Ziggy is having trouble interfacing with. All they have is a code name, Operation Lazarus, and a casualty list. Sam is even willing to shoot Tom in the leg to keep him off the mission and safe, but Al retorts that they could be shot down on the way to the hospital, and that until they know what the mission is, where it went wrong, and how Tom dies, they won't know how to save him. They are interrupted by Tom, Maggie, and Grimwald, when they enter arguing over whether Maggie should go on the mission. Tom thinks the crew can't handle it because they are already so in tune. If Magic gets gas, Tom breaks wind and won't be able to deal with the distraction. Maggie concedes and asks if she can stay to photograph the squad at camp for a few days, which Tom agrees to. Sam is sent to make up the communications tent for Maggie to stay in and to send in the Chuhoi, former VC who switched sides, for Grimwald to talk to. That night, Sam, Maggie, and the squad are relaxing at the bar slash brothel. Sam recalls Tom never talking about what the SEALs did off-duty, because his mother would have had a cow. Al arrives and tells Sam Ziggy managed to interface with the Pentagon's computer and found out from a newspaper story that Maggie submitted that the base would be attacked by sappers at about midnight that night resulting in the death of Colonel Grimwald and the destruction of most of their ammunition. Ziggy gives it a 52% chance that this is why Sam leapt here, and if so, Sam will leap before being able to save Tom. Sam reluctantly informs them of the ambush, and so they decide to set up an ambush of their own. Maggie tries to get some photographs, but is returned to the communications tent by Tom and put under armed guard by the Chu Hoi. For some reason, the base is not attacked. Sam has changed history and saved Colonel Grimwald, but Al has no idea how he did it. Sam doesn't care though, he hasn't leapt, and now is setting his sights on saving Tom. Sam is told to send the radio message, and so relieves the Chu Hoi of her duty, and with Al's help, tries to send the message, but it doesn't work. Al realizes that the radio is on the wrong frequency. When put on the right frequency, Sam is able to send the message that the battle station is secure. Then Maggie, who has found out about the mission from an even higher commander than Colonel Grimwald, changes into her sexy pajamas and tries to seduce Sam so that he will convince Tom to take her on the mission, as she is willing to sell her soul to win a Pulitzer. In what seems like a moment of weakness, Sam agrees and enjoys a makeout session with Maggie, In reality, he realizes that if Maggie goes on the mission, she will submit a story which Ziggy can pull out and thus find out what goes wrong with the mission so they can fix it. Al thinks it's brilliant. Tom thinks it's stupid. But Sam insists that it's vital to the success of the mission. And since Tom trusts Magic's instincts, he agrees. The next day, when flying to the mission, Sam is sweating because Al is taking so long to arrive. Tom tells Maggie she has to stay in the chopper and finally tells the crew what the mission is, saving two or three American prisoners of war. Pulitzer material, as Maggie calls it. Al, who has just arrived, agrees as Pulitzer material, but not for Maggie. The mission still fails. The POWs aren't saved. Tom still dies. And Maggie never filed the story because she also dies on the mission. Al tells Sam not to tell tom to call off the mission all that would happen is that tom would tell doc to have sam sedated and then he'd be unable to do anything to help but that sam does have an ace in the hole to help him ow the helicopter lands letting the crew out a little later maggie convinces grimwald to land the chopper again so that she can relieve herself but really it's just to sneak off The Chu Hoi leads the squad through a booby-trapped jungle, and in a swamp, they kill a group of sappers. When rummaging through their belongings, looking for weapons to take, Sam notices that their radio has the frequency of 47.30. Grimwald and the pilot realize Maggie isn't coming back, so they fly off without her. Al finds the POWs, who only have two guards, and wants to lead the crew there so that they can be liberated. At the same time, Maggie, while hidden, has also stumbled upon the POWs and in tears photographs them. Sam realizes that 47.30 is the frequency that the radio at the base had been on that night. And so the Chu Hoi must have let them know about their counter ambush the previous night and must now be leading them to an ambush. Sam asks Al what he should do, save Tom or the POWs. So Al leads Sam to the village before the Chu Hoi and Sam kills the VC members who are lying in wait for them. Al has Sam call Grimwald for backup and they attack the village from the air, while Sam kills the Chu Hoi who is about to shoot Tom in the back, thereby saving Tom's life. Al leads Sam and Tom back to the chopper, letting them know where the booby traps are. But Maggie sees them running and tries to follow them and trips a booby trap. She dies in the explosion, but not before seeing Al and saying Pulitzer. Back at the bar slash brothel, Sam gets very drunk and is clearly distressed at being the reason Maggie died, believing he just traded one life for another. Al, Tom, and Grimwald also all blame themselves. Grimwald, who has had Maggie's last photographs developed, brings them for the crew to look at. The whole crew calls her a hell of a woman and wish that Maggie had won her Pulitzer. Al says that she did win the Pulitzer Prize, posthumously, for her last photograph. Sam snatches the photos from Tom, and in the final photograph, it clearly shows Al as one of the POWs. Now Sam is even more distressed that he didn't free his best friend, but Al tells Sam he gets repatriated in five years anyway and was always free in his head. Tom exclaims that it is now April 9th and that he's still alive, Puts his arm around Sam and thanks his little brother as Sam leaps.
2: And that episode recap was by Hayden. While I was listening to you do the episode recap, it crossed my mind about Al's outfit and he was wearing his military uniform in this episode. And we both thought that he was wearing it because he was in the Navy and the SEAL team was there and the military operation and stuff. But when I think of that important scene at the end of this episode, if he had had that look on his face and told Sam the news about deciding to help save his brother instead of being freed from being a POW in one of his flashy, awesome purple shirts with the collar cut out and the silver jacket and the red sunglasses, it wouldn't have had the same effect, I think.
5: I agree. I definitely agree. I just feel like it made it more sad, which is the point I understand.
2: Yes. Very sad episode in a lot of parts, but a good
5: episode. Can we talk about Al for a second? Yes. Okay. I'm completely confused. Now, I've only seen this show once through up to this point. So it could just be that I don't have the whole storyline in my head. And I'm sure that Hayden could probably answer this question for me. But with Al, did he get saved in the original timeline during this mission? Because when I just read the recap, it said the mission was still unsuccessful. So the mission was unsuccessful the first time too, because they got ambushed, right? I believe so. So why did that stop whatever saved him earlier? Because if they didn't save him the first time, why did that change anything the second time?
2: Strangely enough, guess what Hayden's segment is about later?
5: Oh, is it about that? Yeah. I didn't even know. Which is pretty awesome. So
2: (laughs) Hayden does answer that for you.
5: Okay, cool. But I want to know now. No, I don't get to... I guess we'll talk about it after Hayden's segment then. Why he's there longer now, because I was assuming that they were successful the first time But that doesn't make sense because they were led into an ambush.
2: Even before Hayden Segment, it was my thought that something they did changed how the people that were keeping Al and the other's prisoner changed their operations.
5: So it was a butterfly effect kind of thing. Kind of
2: thing, yeah. So he was there additional time because of what happened.
5: Because then my additional question was, if Tom's squad saved Al and Tom died, wouldn't al have known that like dead tom was sitting next to him like on the way home how did that not all connect but if it failed both times then i understand
2: but they could have rescued al
5: i know i understand that i i do and that sucks because we just saw how heartbroken he was that he didn't get rescued as it was and his wife forgot he existed
2: And the extra time that he did spend there, I think two extra years because of what happened. I Mm -hmm. think maybe that's partly responsible for why he was free in his mind because he actually was there longer and got to a point in his brain that he had to go to his happy place to be able to survive, whereas before he might not have.
5: Yeah, that's crazy. I just feel so bad. Like Al just needs a hug after those three episodes.
2: If we ever meet Dean Stockwell, we'll give him a hug and we'll say that's for Al. Okay, (laughs) deal. (laughs) Anybody going to that convention that he's going to be at in a little bit, give him a hug. Say, that's that's for Al from the Quantum Leap podcast. (laughs) Now, when you go back and watch Quantum Leap again and watch MIA, will you have that sadness from the very beginning of that story arc like the rest of us?
5: I think so. Because I know I've talked before about the pressure that I feel kind of, and I think that you either avoid my eyes while we're watching the episodes now or you stare at me to see my reaction so it it depends but i think that now i kind of understand more of why mia is so much more powerful than than it was now and not that it wasn't emotional the first time i watched it but i mean seeing this episode brings back all of those feelings and it sucks because we already saw him basically destroyed by what happened and now it made it worse but if al had said i'm over there sam would have let his brother die because sam does the right thing so if sam knew that al was there his brother died the first time so i think that he would have saved al but that also shows al's love for his best friend that he basically sacrificed years of his life just so his brother would live Both
2: Al and Sam are that guy that would give up their happiness for the other.
5: Which is awesome. That's a crazy friendship. How do you tell your best friend, pick me over your brother?
2: Well, I think in that shot of Al, when he's telling Sam that you can go over there and save them right now, and Sam asks Al for help. You can see his
5: face kind of break.
2: Yeah, just that second. He's like, okay, I'm alive. I'm here. I made it through. If we help Tom, we can save Tom's life. But I still go through that hell that I went through. I think you can see that in his mind.
5: But he could have died. He could have died being there longer.
2: I don't know if he knew at that point it would make him stay there longer. I don't know how that works. Man, but he could have just been like,
5: but I'm right there, just right there.
2: If there was a way to save Maggie, Tom, and Al, that would have been great. Yeah. But it wouldn't have been a sad ending and it would have just been any other episode.
5: It sucks that Sam's face at the end when. Al says like it's the last photo and he sees Al's face and he's just like man he realizes what his friend just did for him and I didn't expect him to save his brother I know that he's changed the future in so many different episodes but I clearly did not think he was going to save his brother
2: the first time I watched it with you You kept saying, is he still alive? When does he die? Is he going to die here? Is he going to die here? I know, I
5: just completely...
2: assumed he was going to die. You didn't think there was a possibility he was going to make it. No. Even after Sam saved his brother, you're still like, okay, now what?
5: (laughs) Yeah, like I didn't know. And I was like, wow, that was kind of... I was waiting for the ending where you find out that Al had to stay.
2: Even in the beginning of the episode when Sam leaps in in the teaser and he's magic... And he warns Tom and the rest of the guys that there was an ambush there. He could have been saving Tom right there. Right. So for people thinking that he's going in saving Tom, at first it might look like he did save him.
5: It's crazy because he's so focused on saving his brother, which I understand. Because I have brothers and I would do whatever I could to save them if it was something like that, if I was in that situation. But he doesn't (laughs) even... Time traveling? No, but I mean, if I had the chance to save my brothers, like knowing that I had held their fate in my hands... I would do anything I could to save my brother's life. But he doesn't even consider the POWs. He doesn't even hear Al say the POWs are over there because he's so focused. I think because he didn't get the chance in the last episode to save his family. And Al basically said, this is not what you're here to do. You're not here to save them. And once he got to that realization, the next time he was like, okay, you put me with my brother twice now. There's gotta be a reason that I'm here on the day my brother dies, and like if his brother did die that would just it would be so cruel. I'm so glad that his brother is saved and I'm very glad that Al is still alive because I thought the first time I watched it that in that moment when he's standing there with this look on his face and he's in that uniform, I thought he was dead
2: like if he faded out
5: yeah i I would have lost my mind at that point that would have done it for me we love Al oh my gosh yeah, and especially after this trilogy of episodes where it's so raw and so emotional.
2: I've said it before but it's great writing but it wouldn't work if Dean Stockwell wasn't the man.
5: Who well, was I out. think Scott and Dean have such a connection that you can tell like they really do care about each other in real life and that I think helps with the scenes like this.
2: This is one of the reasons why Quantum Leap is so amazing.
5: I'm almost afraid of what <laughs> is to come. If this is season 3, I I'm, I'm a little hesitant but this was such a good episode because there's so many elements to the story where you have the connection that sam has with his brother the connection that sam has with al and that al has with sam and when tom brings up his brother and remembering the promise that he made he remembers and he wants to stay true to his brother like that means so much and you can tell it means a lot to sam i just want sam to like go to the future now and see what's different (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Want him to leap home. You never know. Yeah, I'm sure I have to wait a few seasons, but it was a good episode. I didn't I didn't expect Maggie to die. Did you expect Maggie well, you knew she died, but Yeah, I guess
2: I knew from watching it repeatedly as a child, young adult.
5: Yeah. You liked her round lenses. <laughs> oh my
2: goodness. <laughs> uh Can we talk about Andrea Thompson a little bit in this episode? She has the it factor that I don't know what it is, and I can't really put my finger on it, but she is very attractive and sexy. I think it's the way she carries herself. Oh, yeah. Her voice and her attitude when she's playing this character, but even when she plays other characters in other shows like Babylon 5, and she was even a CNN reporter. Did you know that? I did not. Very cool. There's just something about her that makes her very sexy. So she works perfect in the part of Maggie Dawson. The clothing she was wearing, or lack thereof, didn't hurt that either.
5: Well, when you are doing what you can to get your way, and you're the only woman that these men have seen for months, you are going to play that up as much as you can.
2: What do you feel about Maggie using her sexuality and her attributes to influence and blind the men (laughs) she's around really
5: feel like it's working for her or did work for her i mean sometimes a girl's got to do what a girl's got to do unfortunately not that that's really fair but it's not our fault that you guys are men are easily manipulated yes (laughs) and
2: and, and blinded to logic because of lenses yeah very pointy round lenses
5: i don't think lenses are pointy
2: no i don't know how cameras work really (laughs) There's a refraction thing going on or something, right?
5: Yeah. I don't think it's all our fault that you guys are so easy to manipulate.
2: (laughs) I guess if you have certain tools, you use them. Yeah. And she did.
5: You guys use logic. We use our (laughs) attributes, our lenses.
2: (laughs) Don't want to generalize, but uh, for the most part.
5: Well, right. I'm sure guys do the same thing.
2: (laughs) (laughs) No, I'm, I'm... Hello, look at how sexy I am. No,
5: I'm just saying. There's guys I'm sure that use their looks and physique to influence women.
2: I think it's one of those things. If you have that thing about you, you don't have to use it. It's just
5: it's it's there. It's there. And people are like, okay, yes. Like when
2: Scott Bakula goes through life, he doesn't have to be charming and sexy. He just is, so people adore him, kind of thing. Speaking of, there was a little eye candy. If you're a Scott Bakula fan, he was in those short shorts again. Did you notice that? (laughs) Yeah.
5: I guess it was really hot over there, I'm sure.
2: I was confused at first because he was like, don't put underwear on. And I thought he was wearing underwear, but that was the shorts he walked around in.
5: I guess it was good that Al has been there so he knows everything to do in that situation again.
2: To tell him not to wear underwear and not button his top button. Why is that a thing? I don't know, but I must be a Navy SEAL because I don't wear underwear and I don't button my top button.
5: That's because you can't button your top button.
2: (laughs) (laughs) This was the first episode they did the whole last week on Quantum Leap. If that aired today, they would say last time, I think, because they would know syndication and stuff like that.
5: Yeah, but back then, I don't think there really was. As much. Yeah. Now it's like Netflix. They release the season all at once.
2: (gasps) A few minutes ago on Quantum Leap.
5: (laughs) Six seconds ago. (laughs) Because what is it, like 10 seconds in between episodes? about. Would you like to continue watching? Yes, Yes, of course. Always. Don't judge me, Netflix.
2: Unless I tell you stop
5: playing, please play. Yeah. Even if I'm sleeping, I still want to watch it.
2: Exactly. (laughs) It's my bandwidth. I want it now.
5: (laughs) This episode has a lot of
2: different things going on in it. There's a mystery element to it of who's working for the other side. How is the information getting out? What's going on there? Now, did you figure out the mystery before you knew it was Tia Carrera?
5: I didn't want her to be the bad guy because I like her from Lilo and Stitch. I thought that she was the red herring because Al says, I never trust informants unless they're cute, something like that. So I thought that was like them throwing it out there so you don't trust her. Anybody could have been in the communications tent. Now, when he found the other radio and it was on the other frequency, my top three choices. Was Maggie Dawson, Colonel Grimwald, or T.T.? I wasn't sure. I thought that T.T. was a red herring because it was kind of obvious enough that you didn't think it was her. So it's like it was almost like a double red herring because I thought that would be the obvious choice. So I thought it wasn't her. And Grimwald seemed to be someone who could be paid off to me. Mm. Like He seemed like somebody who could be persuaded to... I don't know why he would have gotten killed in the original timeline though. That was my only thing, but it could have been an accident, I guess. And then her because she seemed sneaky. So, sly. Yeah. But anybody could have been in the communications tent and on the radio.
2: Does the episode lose a little bit because uh, you know who done it on repeated viewings?
5: For me, I don't think it did because I I feel like that wasn't The biggest part of the episode for me. Well, each viewing for me, I think, was a little bit different because the first time it was like the mystery. I had no idea what was going to happen. I didn't know when Tom was going to die because I was convinced he was going to die. I didn't know what was going to cause Sam to leap, what the thing was to change. I didn't know who the informant was. I didn't know any of that information. Second time I knew, but then I was looking more at Sam's faces, at Tom's face, you know, like their reactions to each other. Their interactions, Al and Sam's interactions, and Al's reactions, and when he realizes that he's not going to get saved, and when he realizes, I'm assuming he knew the whole time that he was the POW to save. And looking for the moment that Al's face changed, and when he realized that he wasn't going to get saved, and or until later, I guess. But those kind of things that you don't notice the first time. Because like you don't notice that Sam's face changes as much. The first time you watch it, when Sam's like, please just help me save my brother. And he's like, okay. Like he's just like, all right, let's do this. But you don't realize why he looks like that and why he hesitates for a second. He doesn't hesitate for long and he doesn't really put out a strong facial expression. But it's enough when you know what's coming to notice it. It was just different. I don't think anything was taken away for me because then I was more interested in the foreshadowing elements that I missed the first time.
2: For me, the episode loses a little bit when we know who done it, who the culprit was, but only in the scenes where the mystery is presented to us because you're like, yeah, I know who done it.
5: See, I'm not a fan of spoilers, but if I get spoiled, I'm not upset about it, I guess, as much as you are. It doesn't really affect it for me.
2: I just think it was amazing that Donald Belazario was able to pepper things in throughout the series to all come to a culmination in this episode.
5: I'm fascinated with stuff like that. This is the beauty of rewatching something. I remember when I read the Harry Potter books, and I only read them through once, and I remember watching the movies going, oh, that's when they started this. And I remembered it from the books. It's like a reward for people who know the ending or who know what's coming up next to have those foreshadowing things. And anytime I rewatch a show, it's crazy to see a story before it actually develops and have that in your head and you know what's going to come up next. And that's almost more exciting to watch it the second time than it is to watch it the first time. So
2: I agree. I think that's why Leapers, when we watch M.I.A. Leap Home Part 1 and then 2, we have that strong sense of, I guess, sadness throughout those three episodes because we know the whole deal and we can appreciate it more. The little things that really don't mean anything on the first viewing that we see so much more clear rewatching them.
5: Well, I think the biggest thing that, that I kept thinking the second time I watched The Leap Home Part 2 was thinking back to MIA and how destroyed Al was. But this episode, he's okay because he already knows there was nothing he could do. There was no way he could have saved everything with Beth. He tried. He tried and it wasn't meant to be. So I think that in this episode, he's not as destroyed because he has come to terms with it. And it was more important to him to have Sam's brother live than it was for a couple more years. For him to be at POW, it was more important to see his friend get his brother back.
2: You know what's sad too, now that we know that Sam saved Tom, makes you
5: almost feel worse about Sam saying no to Al that he couldn't save his relationship with Beth. I was so angry at Sam in this episode because all he had to do was tell Beth that Al was still alive. He didn't have to say I'm a time traveler. He didn't have to say Al's here as a hologram. He would just say, like, I know that your husband is still alive and he's in Vietnam and everything. He's going to come home. And that's it. Like, she would have waited. And then that was exactly what my feelings after I watched M.I.A. And now that Al helped Sam save his brother, you look back and you're kind of like, well, Sam, you're kind of a jerk. And that's saying a lot because Sam is not a jerk. I I know, but it makes you feel so bad because you're like, you shouldn't have saved his brother, Al, because he wouldn't have let you. But no matter what they did in this episode, it would have either helped Al or it would have helped Sam. So who do you pick? But he should have saved Beth's marriage to
2: yeah. Well, it's up to GTFW, God, time, fate, whatever, who I know, and I'm ready to reveal who it is right now. Donald P. Belisario.
5: <laughs> I was like, I don't know where you're going with this. <laughs> you're like, don't tell me, don't tell me. I'm like, no, why would they reveal, reveal
2: that? It's his universe, and he's the one in control of it, and he's doing a good job. So it's he's to blame. (laughs) Speaking of telling people you're a time traveler and stuff, I feel like there was a cut scene in this maybe when Sam was drunk at the end of the episode talking about how he traded one life for another and talking to his brother, Tom. I think the reason why Tom said little brother at the end is maybe that Sam as magic was uh, and drunk and sam's not drunk very often might have said you know i'm I'm your little brother sam i'm a time traveler and tom would have said that's what i told you he said earlier so you're just making that
5: up i was thinking he was saying it like into the air like thanks little brother i made it oh, kind of thing
2: that's a good but, thing too
5: but he did look at magic or he just in that moment he was drunk enough to see Sam. I don't know. <laughs> that's pretty drunk.
2: <laughs> you know, Magic, you kind of look like my little brother be aged. And uh, yeah, I don't know. I don't think I've ever been that drunk
5: <laughs> when, when I see someone through someone's aura. <laughs> uh,
2: that's funny. I'll ask uh, David Newsome about that later, see what he has to say.
5: Speaking of David Newsome, I love Tom's character.
2: He is good, very good.
5: He's so much. Like Sam, in the honorable, moral way, they did so good with that. It's so much what I expected Tom to be.
2: What I loved about David Newsom's performance in both part one and part two of The Leap Home is they're the same character, and yet they're very different. Because in The Leap Home part one, we have someone who's been through his military training. He's ready to go off to Vietnam, and he still has that spark about him. When we see him in Vietnam in this episode, he's a changed man. He's, yeah, he's seen definitely things. broken,
5: more jaded.
2: He still has his personality to where he tries to be happy and tries to have fun. But you can definitely tell it's gotten real for him. And I think that's not in the writing. It might have been suggested in the writing. But I think that's all in the performance of David Newsom and how he approached the character the second time.
5: I also think he believed that he could have died. Like, I think he was a little worried that his brother said he was going to die and this was the day. Like, you could kind of tell that he was like, this could happen. Because before, on Thanksgiving, when before he left, he was like, no, I'm not going to die. There's not war going on over there. You know, like, you you get this idea of that could never happen to me. And then he was there and saw what it was really like and realized that he could very much well die.
2: Any of them could die at any moment. Yeah. He realized that it was a reality.
5: It's crazy. I don't don't know. He did such a good job, though. And I'm so glad that his character was just such a a good character. And I know you were so excited to get him on the show when we found out we were getting him on the show. And I didn't understand because I think it was way before we actually saw this episode when you found out. So... But I get it now. Like, I get what's he's such a big deal, because not that he didn't play a big role in the last episode, because he did. I mean, it's his brother and he loves his brother. But this role made me fall in love with him.
2: I have his phone number.
5: <laughs> I just meant the character. Not, not that there's anything against David Newsom, because he <laughs> provided the character. He's a big time Hollywood producer now. Well, look at that. So you never know.
2: There's a lot of cool people in this episode, besides...
5: Is there not normally a lot of cool people in the episode? I think this one has a little bit
2: extra. That's just because you've talked to a lot of them. Patrick Warburton. Yeah. Putty from Seinfeld, Joe from Family Guy, he's in everything. I think yeah. he had a very small part in this episode, but what he did with his scenes was he made that character a big character and a big part of the show, I think.
5: He was the horny water skier, right?
2: <laughs> yes. <laughs> he played Blaster.
5: Yeah, I recognize his voice as you have to in everything. I think he's literally in everything that's animated <laughs> now. Whether it's Disney or Family Guy, anywhere in between, he's in it. Yeah, he's been in a lot of stuff.
2: What Disney film has he been in?
5: Well, we just watched Mr. Peabody and Sherman the other night. He was in that
2: great time travel was movie.
5: Argamemnon, I ah. believe. And I think he's been in like Penguins of Madagascar recently. I think he was in the New Plains movie. He's in everything. I think everything animated that I've seen recently either has him or someone who sounds like him.
2: So he's kind of a big deal. Maybe that's why we couldn't get to his people. Yeah. They're like, he's really busy. He, yeah. We tried, he folks. We, we tried. <laughs> so if, if you know or are him, please contact the Quantum Leap podcast.
5: Yeah, because we can always have him on another show. Wouldn't that be cool to have him on the show? That would be awesome. In this
2: episode, Maggie was so obsessed with winning a Pulitzer. What is a Pulitzer? I know it's a prize awarded for some kind of journalism, but more specifically, what is it?
5: Well, it started in 1917, and Pulitzer was a, a guy's last name. His name was uh, Joseph Pulitzer. But it's basically an award for like newspaper or online journalism, literature, musical composition, kind of like an arts thing, there's 21 categories that are given away each year, but it's a like a gold medal and you get $10,000. But I think it's more that that goal that you have in your head when you're in a category like that is probably like a very high honor.
2: Right. Like for us, we would want to win a podcast award. Right. Of some sort. Possibly a- Any.
5: <laughs> <laughs> Any podcast award will do.
2: Like a Parsec award. Right. Very important. I don't know why, but it's just nice to be recognized. I don't think I would die for it though.
5: Well, I think it's, if you're a competitive person, I feel like it would be more, you'd be hungry for that.
2: I definitely don't have the competitive gene or the war gene. Right. That's not me.
5: So you and Maggie wouldn't get along. No. Competitive war gene seems to run in her. Speaking of running, I think
2: Sam, after he saved Tom's life, I think he should have stuck right next to Maggie, not said, come on, Maggie. No, 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 no. Wait, wait, wait. That was kind of weird. I guess she did have to die, but Sam could have prevented that too.
5: She was running. He wasn't running. She wasn't, she running?
2: Well, Sam was at the tripwire. Yeah. And he was having everybody hop over and then he ran with the pack, forgetting about Maggie coming.
5: Well, I don't think they knew Maggie was coming. That's a good point. So when he
2: turned around and saw her, then was he was too like, late. no, 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 yeah. no.
5: It's not that they left. They didn't know she was out of the chopper until then. So
2: he was ready to leave without Maggie.
5: They didn't know she got out of the chopper. She wasn't supposed to be out.
2: Oh, so Sam thought Maggie was still in the chopper. Thank you for explaining that to me. Now I'm a little less mad at Sam for letting Maggie die. I feel like we're really harping on Sam this episode. How dare you save your brother? He had a rough time. And normally he's very selfless. But this episode, he wanted to save his brother and he did.
5: I don't think that's very selfish.
2: No, he was still saving someone else. Right. he didn't know that he could have saved Al. Right. If he'd known. Oh, man. I don't know what he would have done.
5: I bet he felt really bad in this episode.
2: Well, uh, speaking of that, when he's in the chopper and they're going on the mission, you can just feel in Sam's face, Scott's expression, that pain that he felt knowing that what he did bring along Maggie caused her to die because she didn't die before.
5: But I mean, in the grand scheme of things, I feel like the Al thing was more profound than Maggie dying. I mean, I know he caused her death. But she was only in this episode. <laughs> <laughs> and Babylon Five. Another thing I haven't seen. <laughs> so that's
2: for the uh, starting in no. twenty seventeen, mm-hmm. the Babylon Five no, rewatch podcast. Oh wait, somebody your, else is your, already doing that.
5: Your friend ruined that for me. So your friend Bruce Boxleitner ruined that whole. He series. was having an off day. Well, it was the day that I met him. <laughs> <laughs> Did you notice that Sam acts kind of goofy? And a little slow in this episode? (laughs) A little bit. He said in his
2: interview recently that he didn't start adding pieces of the Leapy into his character until season
5: three. Well, my thought was I didn't understand any of the language in this episode. So maybe he just like didn't know. I mean, he wasn't supposed to know, right?
2: I think he was out of his element for real.
5: Yeah. And I think he was legit scared to be there too.
2: (laughs) And at the same time, giddy that he had another chance to save his brother.
5: It was believable that he was out of his element, and but he had kind of the same innocent kid feel that he did, and it might have been because he was with his big brother.
2: Right, a guy he always looked up to.
5: So, and then this just occurred to me, I just had a random quantum leap flashback, but Disco Inferno, that completely changes Disco Inferno because he gets to save his brother too. Crazy. Pretty awesome. Look at that. He saved the little brother in that episode and his big brother. Because that's when he started remembering Tom.
2: Sam was out of his element because military, there's only one way to do things. But normal life, when he leaps into somebody else, he can get away with going, oh yeah, sure. But you have to say in the military a certain way, a certain word, a certain phrase. Luckily, Al was there. Yes. Always. <laughs> we all need an owl with us. I like the beginning of the episode where... He's yelling Tom, and they start shooting, and he just ducks under the water, because that's totally what I would do. And it made for a great shot when he comes up out of the muddy water.
5: Yeah, there was a lot of good shots in this episode, and I loved with them, like, having the paint on their face, and it it was very believable that it was military and It was. Uh, environment. The lighting
2: was really good, I thought, too, especially in the scene where they were getting ready to be ambushed.
5: <laughs> but they're getting... We're going to sit here and get ready to be ambushed.
2: By the sappers. There was a lot of red lights shining up on their faces and a lot of different lighting techniques going on, and it made for a really beautiful picture. And even the filming of the show and the choice of lenses, there's a bunch of lens flares in the episode, which I really enjoyed. You don't see very often in Quantum Leap. That was a nice touch. They did that way before J.J. J. Abrams did that to everything else.
5: Maybe that's where J.J. Abrams got it. How did they do that in that one episode of Quantum Leap? You never know. So a sapper, just in case you're wondering, okay. also called pioneer or combat engineer, is a combatant or soldier who performs a variety of military engineering duties, such as bridge building, laying or clearing minefields, demolitions, field defenses, and general construction, as well as road and airfield construction and repair. So that doesn't really help us. <laughs> They're just people. That's Wikipedia. So I guess it's just a combat engineer.
2: Yeah, combat engineer.
5: Frontline infantry.
2: People in boats with bags of guns. (laughs) The mission they were on was Operation Lazarus. I'd heard that before in a bunch of sci-fi things, so I looked that up. It's a biblical reference, and what it said is he's restored to life four days after his death is the gist. So I think that applies to saving Tom.
5: Yeah, but why was it named that?
2: Well, just because the military name stuff. But I think why Donald Belisario wrote it is because it was about bringing Tom back
5: from being dead. You're thinking reality-wise. I I was was thinking, like, in the show. In the universe of Quantum Leap.
2: Okay, then bringing back POWs from maybe being killed.
5: That's a good reason. Lazarus.
2: So it's it's about uh, reviving somebody after four days. Why
5: couldn't they have saved Tom and Al? Explain that to me. Why can't we just... Well, they're both alive now, though. True.
2: If... Sam chose Al, Tom would be dead.
5: Do we get to find out more in the next episode about this or is it, are we dropping this? Issue? I think
2: the next episode has nothing to do with this trilogy.
5: Do we get to find out more about what happened to Al? Oh, are we I, I done? think
2: Al and Sam, we find out more about their characters the whole way through the series. And that's not a spoiler.
5: No, it's like the opposite of a spoiler. Is it? What's the opposite of a spoiler? Uh, Just a general statement where it's Pretty obvious. Oh. We're gonna find out more about both of their characters throughout the series. But that's a good thing. So the next episode's just like a lighthearted back to season one kind of episode. How do you follow up that trilogy?
2: Well, you can't go serious and dark again.
5: You can if you're in a show like Game of Thrones or Outlander, I think. Yes. I, I don't know. I don't watch Game of Thrones. According to my Facebook, it's really not a happy show. <laughs> <laughs> I guess in the nineties you had to keep it lighthearted. At some point. At some point. Is
2: Sam still drunk when he leaps into the Catholic priest in the next episode?
5: Maybe that sobers him up. (laughs) Where am I?
2: Oh, boy. (laughs) Man, maybe I had a couple too many drinks. Did you think it was weird that one of the soldiers in the helicopter could smell Maggie from that far away? That's like a weird thing.
5: I don't know. Five months without any women. I don't know. Well, that's what they're saying. But Tia
2: Carrera is right there all the time. I never even thought of that. She's definitely a woman and a beautiful woman, so I don't know how that works. I, <laughs> I, 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 I didn't know how to take that. Like, yes, soldiers in the military are crude.
5: There's some pretty horny men, and it looks like and they're horny. getting laid in the brothel too. Yeah. I mean,
2: yeah, there's women there, and that can't be that far. About right? Double
5: jointed women. I mean.
2: What, or was it Magic that was double-jointed?
5: No, he said, ask my... Whoa well, oh, yeah, I figured, like... Because they had have
2: had so relations with him. That,
5: but that even furthers your point of, like... There's women everywhere. Yeah, but maybe they hadn't seen five... No, because they're... Were they, I don't know. So... Well, no, they were just coming back.
2: From a mission. Right. Mm, okay. I don't know. I don't know. The only thing I thought of is if she was wearing perfume, that might have made it okay. Because I know certain perfumes I can smell... Hours after, smelled your
5: boobs from miles away. Lenses, lenses. (laughs) Smelled your camera lenses.
2: Yeah, uh, hmm. might have a certain lubricating oil on the mechanisms in the camera. No, stop. stop. I don't know. I don't don't know where I was going. I don't know where I was going.
5: There was a line, and you crossed. But
2: but it was kind of weird that he could smell her. Guys are weird. Yes. So I guess that's how men act when women aren't around. I don't know.
5: Did you think that Sam? Calling the wrong frequency was going to do something. Once I figured out that like 47.30 was the frequency back at, I was like, wait, did he cause something to happen? Because he called them too.
2: I never thought about that. Probably because I saw this episode before I remembered seeing
5: it. I thought something was going to, I mean, obviously it connected the two, but he definitely called the enemy And was like, hey, we're safe. Just figured I'd let you know. We're standing down so you can come attack us now. We're secure. Like, why didn't that go anywhere? (laughs) It was cool that there was 47s in
2: this episode. There's not a lot in Quantum Leap. And we had two because of the radio channel frequency and also the push-ups. When they were panning across Blaster and he was doing his push-ups, the first time he was saying 46, 47, 48. And uh, an interesting thing about that shot is at the end of the episode, when they were back at the bar slash brothel, They stole that shot from earlier because the girl that was on top of Blaster was in a pink outfit, and when you see the wide shot of the bar, the girl on top of Blaster is in a blue outfit.
5: Maybe they just needed a filler shot and didn't want to re-tape.
2: I hadn't noticed it until my most recent viewing of this episode, so it really doesn't matter, but you can just... It was strange. I was like, that looks very familiar. (laughs) Nitpicky. A little bit. Kennedy was referenced, little John John saluting his father at his funeral was referenced in this. It was kind of weird.
5: I totally missed that. In all the times I watched it, I didn't get that reference.
2: Deke Grimald was mentioning that he had his photograph taken saluting when he was a little baby, and then John John had the same thing, and that his made the cover of Time magazine. So I thought that was really weird making a joke about that, but it showed how much of an insensitive person that guy was. I like how they were drinking beer out of the steel cans that they had to use can punch openers, kind of like Juicy Juices now still. Was it still? No.
5: I don't know. I don't drink Juicy Juice out of a can. But
2: it was cool seeing the retro beer cans, and they were saying how the beer was warm. It reminded me of stories of my dad telling me he was in Korea, and they kept their beer in gasoline, because apparently liquid gasoline is a lot cooler than the outside temperature. So that's how they kept their beer cold. But he said it tasted like gasoline.
5: I feel like that's not worth it to me. <laughs> I've never wanted to drink beer that much, but I guess I didn't. I was in the military, so I don't understand.
2: I didn't get the beer gene either. And it also reminded me of my dad talking about the brothels in Korea. So that that was a very real thing because the stories he told me were very similar to this episode. And maybe Mr. Belisario being in the military had firsthand knowledge of that environment of when you're over in combat and Every day could be your last day. You really don't know. So you try to survive as best you can and enjoy yourself when you can.
5: Yeah, I think it was a very believable military scene. So in the scene where Maggie Dawson is getting undressed and they're in the communications tent. I have to
2: say it's my favorite scene.
5: Okay, Al, calm yourself.
2: I felt like Al this whole episode because of Maggie Dawson and Andrea Thompson. I feel bad about feeling so lecherous. Is
5: that bad or good that I feel bad about it? I don't know how to answer that whole question. I don't know. I love that Sam gives Al a look because he's not paying attention to the fact that the radio isn't going anywhere. And he's like, Oh, she put on her jammies. And Sam's like, Really, buddy? Like, he looks at him like, Are you kidding me right now? And then Al gives basically the same look back to Sam when Sam starts making out with Maggie. He's like, Are you kidding me right now? <laughs> like, it's just funny that they pretty much exchange. The same look a few seconds later. My next question is, did they like have sex or did they just totally. make out? Well, in my recap.
2: What did the recap say?
5: Said made out. Oh, so they, they totally assumed, okay,
2: had relations. They had relations. With that woman.
5: Well, because it was funny because Al was waiting outside. Like afterwards, like he didn't want to look.
2: Yeah, if they were just making out, Al might have watched, but he didn't watch. Sam so has
5: come a long way from I don't want to <laughs> kiss the the married woman to, I'm just going to have sex because she looked at me nice.
2: He has to have the reason, like, saving his brother's life to have sex with a woman.
5: I don't think sex was necessary there, but good for him. I mean...
2: I would have made the same deal
5: Of with- course you would have, <laughs> but you're more like Al than you are like Sam. I guess
2: I am. I, I try to have the best parts of both in me. <laughs> okay, let me restate that.
5: You have to <laughs> keep that in there now.
2: I I try to <laughs> I try to take both. I try to take the good. Hmm. I don't think you can say that. I try to take the good personality traits between Sam and Al and combine them into my own.
5: <laughs> it's I still like it better the first way.
2: Defending Al, if if there's boobs or a radio in a room, most people will look at the boobs over the radio.
5: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay lenses
2: lenses when i was a young teenager that particular part of the episode got a lot of wear and tear on my vhs home recorded
5: ew, copy ew what i don't want to know
2: i just watched it a lot and it was interesting to me uh-huh about the radio tuning
5: yeah you were really interested in the 47.30 radio frequency mm-hmm. so then how
2: many times has sam had sex with people when he's sleeping i uh honeymoon express that's 1
5: oh, yeah at the end
2: the piano teacher in Catch a Falling Star.
5: I still think that was wrong because it was this piano teacher for when he was a kid.
2: Uh, piano teachers are sexy. See Groundhog Day.
5: <laughs> you just wanted to see the look on my face for that, didn't you?
2: And this episode, can you think of any
5: others? So far, that's about
2: three, I think.
5: Wasn't there another love interest he had, though? No, I don't think so. I don't think he's gotten that far with anyone else.
2: Yeah, I liked how Al was saying, you're barking up the wrong tree.
6: Yeah,
5: like, you're not going to get very (laughs) far with this one. When Sam says,
2: deal, I'm like, damn right, deal. That's a good deal. What do you think about the uh, makeup effects in this episode? The burned face on that woman in the boat. It looked painful. Yeah. But But it looked real. Real painful. I'm sure they used a lot of, like, reference of real things. Bad stuff happened over there.
5: Why were we over there again? I asked you the same thing earlier. (laughs) I have no
2: idea. My best recollection is that it was because they felt that South Vietnam was a domino that if it fell to communism would cause the whole world to go communist so it was about different different financial systems
5: Would you have been one of those people like holding the picket signs for Vietnam to for us to
2: come home I would have blogged about it <laughs> <laughs> Did they have blogs
5: back then I don't think so maybe you would have started a trend
2: Maybe uh, as far as I know, it was just a difference in systems like capitalism versus communism.
5: We learned a little bit about Vietnam and the protests and stuff during Animal Frat. What did you think of the mirror shot in this episode? It wasn't really a mirror gag as much as just a shot of,
2: because there was only one. I remember two the two. mirror
5: in the tent and then the mirror in the bar. But how did I miss the mirror in the tent?
2: I don't know. That's the part where he said, magic. Why? And they looped it in.
5: Oh, right.
2: Why do they always loop that in? It doesn't make sense to me because they could get the sound on the day, but they always, as a rule, loop that in. I don't
6: know. It's
2: weird. One of your hobbies is photography. Did you uh, see anything in this episode that didn't go along with your knowledge of photography as pertaining to the character of Maggie taking photographs?
5: I'm not a war correspondent photojournalist, so I'm sure there's a lot more that they knew that I didn't know.
2: I know I've talked about this before, but how whenever there's an interracial relationship in Quantum Leap, it's always between two white people.
5: (laughs) And it just strikes
2: me as weird.
5: I feel like Donald P. Belisario is not against that.
2: Exactly. That's why I find it so weird.
5: Is it weird that I don't notice those things? Does it, like, I don't think about it like that i don't know
2: i just i don't think i would notice it if i didn't notice it once and then like look through the whole history of quantum leap to see that albie's nitpicking
5: again so i thought it was weird that considering al has such a tie to this episode he refers to the time that they're in in the past tense like maggie was sitting right there and he's like she was killed in this mission i was like It was very choice words that he used. She was killed in this mission.
2: Not she will be. She
5: is killed in this mission or she will be killed in this mission. I just thought like it was strange that he talked in past tense when Sam's right here experiencing it and he's, you know, right in the other field over there. That was just something I noticed that he says she was killed in this mission.
2: I didn't pick up on that. I'll have to rewatch the episode. There wasn't much stock footage in this episode, but there was some. I think it was stuff you really wouldn't want to recreate with bullets blasting into the shacks and rivers and jungles of Vietnam. It looked like it might have been pulled from real war footage.
5: Yeah, I I noticed that in some of the helicopter shots, which I don't know if they were stock looking or if it's just because helicopter shaky cams weren't that great back then.
2: Maybe. My best guess is it was stock footage. And I looked in it to see if there were people in the footage, because that would be horrible. And I didn't see any. So I think it's okay.
5: I don't know how that works. Did they have a lot of stock footage from back then?
2: Oh, yeah. That was one of the first wars that was televised, and they filmed most of it. And it was on TV every night, and they actually did film it with film. That's why so many people were against it. The wars prior to that, it was just over there happening somewhere. But Vietnam was in everyone's living room every night.
5: I'm really glad that they they don't do that as much. Well, I guess they kind of do still. A little bit. Broadcast,
2: But you have to tune to Channel 147 to see it. It's not one of your three or three of your three channels that you have.
5: Yeah, I'm I'm okay not seeing more. I mean, I'm not oblivious to it. I I understand that it's going on, but I wouldn't want to be there right with the infantry.
2: So do you think in the original timeline that TT was the one that killed Tom?
5: Yeah, I do. I like that Sam slows down his words and he's like she was going to kill you. Like he realizes at that moment that he just saved his brother. Like she was gonna kill you, and I killed her, and and also he was probably going. I just killed her.
2: If he ever leaps back to a Native American again, has to put his handprints on a horse's butt. It's going to be a lot more handprints now because he was killing left and right in this episode.
5: Yeah, does it? I guess it counts.
2: (laughs) Does it count? Yes. When you kill someone, it counts. When
5: you're defending your brother, when you kill someone that's about to kill your brother, I don't. I don't think he ever. I don't think.
2: As of yet, he leaped into a serial killer that was just killing for fun. I think he was always killing to save someone else.
5: True. Can you imagine that episode?
2: I can. Was it weird that everyone thought it was their fault that Maggie died? No. Was it everyone's fault
5: that Maggie died? It was her fault that she died. Hmm. (laughs) What's your opinion of that?
2: Well, she didn't die before Sam changed the timeline. so. So you think
5: it's Sam's fault?
2: Yeah, but also the... Grimwald's fault. Also Grimwald that landed the helicopter and let her out. That's pretty bad. And of course, the guy who set the tripwire. Probably his fault too.
5: And her fault for getting out of the chopper and sneaking off to photograph, even though she knew it was unsafe.
2: I couldn't imagine being a war photographer.
5: But do you not blame her? Oh yeah, yeah.
6: Oh, okay,
2: But it's just a sad situation all around. Sam says he's traded one life for another. Do you think he did? Do you think God, time, fate, whatever said, you can have Tom, but I'm going to take
5: this other person? Hmm. Hasn't he saved people before? Yes. Maybe we just don't know that another person has died in their place. Maybe. I don't know.
2: Overall thoughts of The Leap Home, part two, Vietnam.
5: I liked it. I might be ready to go to a lighthearted episode after this. (laughs) Three episodes were a little rough, but good, good, very, very good episodes. I think this one was my favorite of the three because it brought everything together. Still very sad. though.
2: Very sad, but good at the same time.
5: Yes, I agree.
2: And now, as promised, David Newsom. David Newsom is a fine art photographer, writer, actor, and producer. A graduate of the Ithaca College Cinema Studies program, David worked in New York City in both film and still photography before moving to Los Angeles in 1990 to work in film and television. As an accomplished actor and producer, David has used his love of storytelling to develop his unique eye as a photographer. In 2005, David's photography work was discovered by Vigo Mortensen at Percival Press, which led to the publishing of the critically acclaimed book Skip. But us Leapers know him best as Tom in The Leap Home Part 1 and 2. David, it's great to have you on the show. How has Quantum Leap doing the role of Tom Beckett impacted your life?
4: (laughs) Well, it's funny because that was a long time ago. Um, I mean, I'm not sure how to... (laughs) I'm not sure how to calibrate the long term impact because it was such a long time ago. And I think all I can really say is it it definitely set a standard for me uh, in a couple of ways. I mean, one, in terms of the sort of, I think, very authentic and heartfelt storytelling that the producers were up to and, and that the actors, the performers on the show were sort of up to telling. I, you know, that it was very new for me. It was the second job I'd ever done. I'd been in the business for, I think, four months at that time. <laughs> Uh, I didn't even know what a casting director was or an agent was when I got that part. And I met and worked with great people who I think set the bar very high, you know. And so to that extent, it was seminal, but it's a long life. And so I've lived a lot of different lives since then and become a producer and a director and a photographer. And so I think what's more relevant is, is how unique and powerful that experience was as an early experience as an actor and how I think it set the bar pretty high for directing, producing, and also for behavior on set. I mean, Scott Bakula is just such a good guy, and he was had such a workmanlike approach. He, he wasn't vain at all. He, he brought nothing but humility to the set, and, and I was very impressed by that, because at that point, I'd only been in town for a few months, and I'd heard nothing but the opposite about Hollywood.
2: Were you surprised to get such a big role on a television show, being it's only your second big job? Yeah.
4: Yeah, I don't think I really, I mean, I had so little frame of reference for what a career was or what to expect from it. I think if I had been through, if I had been tempered by more hard knocks and more rejection, I actually might have appreciated it more. But it was literally, it was all like this kind of wonderful, extraordinary thing that was happening. I think in many ways, perhaps for a young actor in Los Angeles, it was perhaps I got it too soon and maybe it was too easy. Because I really didn't have a context for just how great that part was, and I think I expected them all to be that good. But I had a lot of fun. I also got my ass kicked. Uh, <laughs> the director of the the director of the second piece uh, really really rode me very hard and gave me a very hard time, and I wasn't ready for it. I think ultimately it helped. I'm not sure it was necessary, but uh, yeah, I mean the, the the anecdotes that I have uh, on many fronts from Quantum Leap are a myriad.
2: Can you tell me a little bit about the locations used for uh, both episodes?
4: Well, one was actually out there in the valley. It was uh, it was an agricultural school. And, uh, and you know, I think we were supposed to be here. to have to forgive me because this is going so far back and I've, I've had a pretty full plate the last few years
6: <laughs> <laughs>
4: on other endeavors. But, uh, you know, one was out in the valley and I believe we were supposed to be shooting in Iowa. Um and so it was an introduction in, in many ways of California for me, because we were shooting down in Coronado down at what was actually uh you know the second episode, which was supposed to be Vietnam and the Mekong Delta. We were shooting at a a paintball location it was where they they had the paintball you know the whatever they call that the paint gun wars, yeah. And it was these beautiful, you know, these beautiful sandy rivers running through Reeds and papyrus and all that kind of stuff, which I, I had no idea was within forty minutes of where I was living in Los Angeles at the time. And then we were out out in the valley there in a place that was very, very rural and very agricultural looking and not just looking was. And so it was an introduction to a very diverse version of Los Angeles and what I think I, as a kid growing up in New Jersey, knew existed. So it was pretty cool, um, especially the very immersive quality of the second episode, where we were shooting, living with all my fellow actors, and having two advisors who were also Navy SEALs. It was very immersive. It felt very real, and it felt kind of, sorry, I'm outside on a behind BBC Worldwide here we have a ubiquitous Los Angeles helicopter going overhead.
2: <laughs> uh, appropriate for the episode you're in.
4: Exactly, yeah. Yeah, so that it was very immersive, especially in the second episode. It was very intense. And I think, and I'd have to go back and watch it, and maybe I'd, maybe I'd blush. But I, I think it worked. I think that translated, uh, you know, to the cut, for sure.
2: It absolutely worked. You also worked with some actors that would uh, go on to fame later on, like uh, Patrick Warburton and uh, Tia Carrera, and uh, you also worked with Andrea Thompson. What was that like, working with that group of people?
4: It was great. Uh, you know, it's funny, as Patrick and I were together again on uh, uh, in a comedy uh, that I did with Bradley White and um, Maria Patillo. So it was really funny. I mean, that uh, Patrick and I had a great experience on that. And, and actually became friends, and then I ended up doing a comedy series a few years later, and he came on that, and we encountered each other a couple times over our careers. You know, as I said, it was very new for me, so I I really, if anything, I took it for granted. I, I took for granted how good everyone was. I took for granted how the, the great level of camaraderie we had, a young actor on that, show really became, a, you know, quite literally a loyal soldier to me and really helped me both on the set. A guy named Adam Nelson, who was a real help to me on the set. I and mean, he was a real help in life. He became a really good friend uh, before he moved out of town. But yeah, like I said, I, I, I don't mean to keep repeating myself, but all it did was right off the bat, set the bar very high for how to behave, I guess, you know, how to behave as an actor and how to behave as filmmakers and storytellers.
2: You reprised the role of Scott Bakula's brother in Men of a Certain Age. Uh, was that because uh, <laughs> your role in Quantum Leap, or was that just uh, coincidental?
4: <laughs> I, I, you know, what's funny is uh, my friend Mike Royce was the executive producer on that. He was the showrunner on that uh, show, and my wife ended up being a writer producer on that show, and I think they thought it would be funny. Um, I, I think I really do. I think as much as anything, I know Scott, you know, this is something they intended for you know, Scott's arc on the show. And I think they thought it'd be great if they brought me in. I mean, they didn't really, there wasn't really a lot to do with me once I got there, but I think it was as much kind of an inside joke.
2: Was the gorilla mask in the episode also an inside joke? Cause there was, it's very weird that there was a gorilla mask in Men of a Certain Age and in The Leap Home Part One that you had to wear.
4: You're good. Yeah, yeah, uh, it's funny. I have no idea. I, I, I couldn't even say.
2: That's really funny that you ask that,
4: though. The, the gorilla mask is one of the most trying days on set for me, unquote.
2: How long did you have to have that on and could you breathe and what was that like? <laughs> well,
4: I could breathe fine. Uh, the simple fact is I'm a, I was a mediocre basketball player without a mask on my head. And With the mask on, uh, it was incredibly difficult trying to just, you know, convincingly dribble the ball down court. I couldn't see a thing.
2: <laughs> in the years since, you've become a producer, and uh, you worked on things like Deadliest Catch, I noticed, and a whole bunch of other uh, series. Uh, what, so what what do you do in, in that area, in that field?
4: Well, it's been kind of a, a long and circuitous path. When I was an actor, I was also a photographer. I mean, originally, I went to school for producing. I went to school for filmmaking. and I I, I had never plan to be an actor at all. I I worked in film. I was working in film in New York City uh, and rock commercials. uh, I mean, rock videos and commercials and things like that as a production assistant and a third camera and all that kind of stuff. And I did a play. I got asked to be crew building sets for a play. And I did a small role earlier, early on. And I just had so much fun that I thought I would do it on the side. And literally six months later, I was I
6: mean,
4: it was, it was that fast and it was that, you know, random in a sense, I think ultimately it was probably destined, but I, I certainly wasn't, you know, like many of my friends who are very successful actors to this day, I didn't wake up thinking I wanted to be an actor. Um, I just like telling stories and to get back to your point, I, I've always liked telling stories and I like shooting stories. And so as an actor on set, I always had a camera. And I have a whole sort of my own personal history of my life in Los Angeles and every show I've ever been on and everything I've ever done. And, uh, around the late nineties, I started getting noticed for my photography and then I started having shows and in 2004, uh, an actor named Vigo Mortensen, also a very successful artist and obviously had just, you know, become very wealthy off of the Lord of the Rings trilogy he started his own press. He started Percival Press. And so with the advent of Percival Press, he saw my work and he asked me to do a book for him. And I did a book and that created an even bigger show. And then at that same time, I was interested in producing and I produced a movie for my wife, a short film out of the AFI Directing Workshop for Women. And that did very well. And it won a bunch of awards and culminating in cinema foundation a program at Cannes, uh, the Emerging Artists Division, and then I produced more movies for AFI, and then between having produced and my history with photography, a friend of mine asked me if I'd come up and do uh, specialty land camera photography for Deadliest Catch, and everything just sort of evolved from there. And again, it was another completely coincidental career. It was an accidental career move. I shot up in the Aleutian chain. I lived up in Dutch Harbor for a year and for a season. And didn't just shoot land and time-lapse photography. I ended up shooting stories and some of the stories made it onto the show. And then I was asked to come back and post-produce, which is basically screenwriting and the edit day. And then I did that for a few years and I up up going into the field on different shows for National Geographic. and. You know, and it snowballed from there. Um, my friends who ran Deadliest Catch, and he's gotten a lot of honors and any awards from it. Created their own company, and I went and worked for them, and I end up running three TV shows for them, and here we are.
2: <laughs> wow, that's an amazing <laughs> career right there.
4: It's weird. <laughs> it's a very non-linear career. You know what it is? I am a compulsive. You know, if I'm I'm acting, I'm taking pictures. If I'm taking pictures, I'm writing. I I like to tell stories, and I like to tell stories in words and visually, and I just sort of find any outlet to do that.
2: Do you have a favorite form of uh, storytelling? I don't know. No, I don't. I I
4: just I love a well-told story. I really do. I love spoken word. I love photo essays. I think, you know, we're living, you know, we're sort of witnessing kind of the death of news photography. And, you know, that's going away, you know, entire, you know, departments are being cut from newspapers and things like that. But a well-told photo essay is one of my favorite things. I personally really love the form, the juxtaposition of words and image. And, you know, when I got asked by Vigo to do my book, it might be my favorite thing I've ever done because I... Tried to treat it very cinematically, and it's something we try to do in our shows. We try to never have voice over speak specifically to what you're saying. In other words, the image says something, and then the words say something that augments it or perhaps adds another layer or level to it, but it doesn't, you know, just tell you exactly what you're saying or what you're seeing. And so that, that kind of tension or that kind of juxtaposition between words and images is something I, I love. And so my book, Skip, I guess is my. I, I would say it's like a little movie. I think of it as a short film. You know, I don't really think of it as a book. I think of it as a little dance between words and images. It's almost like a little. It's like a short film, or like a little visual poem, I guess.
2: People can get that at your website, david-newsom dot com, right? Uh,
4: yeah, I think so. <laughs> <laughs> yes, that that uh, it's so funny because that. I had unfortunately I I've been so slammed for the last few years I've run five shows back to back I haven't had time to update my website but I think that uh, if someone wanted to purchase the book that would that would work uh, and you can also order it through Percival Press.
2: Okay, so being a producer is a lot more uh, time consuming probably than acting, huh? <laughs>
4: yeah. Being a producer it's so funny I I now tell all my friends who are actors who complain about work I I, I always say what are you talking about you don't work <laughs> Um <laughs> Uh yeah it's, it's a hard slap in the face going from acting to producing it's producing a full time job and you wear a lot of hats especially in my world because it's not it's not like you know we're not making big studio movies where you have an executive producer and then you have a line producer and then you have a creative producer In my world, uh, it's very hands on. You have to be able to shoot. You have to be able to write story. You have to be able to have at least a rudimentary grasp of post and how to work the avid. And so it's, it's very hands on. And, um, you have to have a fairly large degree of fluency with all aspects of filmmaking. It's not always as rich or sophisticated as, you know, perhaps a big Hollywood movie or those kind of, it's not Birdman, for example. Uh But we are working. I think the thing that draws a lot of us to it is that we get to have our hands on all the tools. And so in a way it's very much like the adventure reality world, the deadliest catch and the light below zero and all those shows. They feel like little independent films. We're small crews. We don't have the kind of hype or the kind of the union um authority. We're we're just all a bunch of little hard scrabble filmmakers who get together and put these things out. But yeah, yeah, you're, it's nonstop. It's it's a long week.
2: Did you at least get your birthday off? Nope. Oh man.
4: <laughs> nope.
2: <laughs> Could you talk to me a little bit about uh, Wes Craven's new nightmare? Sure. Yeah. Uh,
4: yeah. What to say? I mean, you know, I, that's another one. I mean, you know, it's funny you say that. I what a great experience. I mean, truly one of the. I'm sad to say that as an actor, I think all my best experiences happened in the first four years of my career, although I was just on my wife's show, and that was a spectacular experience. But, um, you know, Wes is is an incredibly clever, tongue-in-cheek filmmaker. He's a comedian, really. I think his films are all comedies, and I think he would say the same thing. And when I received the script for New Nightmare, I had never read anything like it. And I don't think... Up to that point, and it's not like I'm, I'm fluent in the whole genre, but I don't think up to that point that, that breaking down the fourth wall, no one had done that yet. Certainly not at the level that he was about to do it. And of course, it really became um, his stock and trade The screen. But this was the first thing that he did. And I think Janet Maslin from the New York Times did a really nice review of it at the time because she really got this was, regardless of whether you thought it was the scariest movie you ever saw, it's certainly one of the most clever and it's very groundbreaking in terms of Wes's ability to, you know, Wes's desire to break the fourth wall and to reinvent Freddy by bringing that kind of malevolence and that kind of danger into the real world. It was all based on a quote by Carl Jung, which was that that which we do not bring to consciousness appears in life as fate. And that the whole, the reason that Freddy had so much power over the lives of these children is because the parents wouldn't, Tell the story. The parents wouldn't own the shadow, right? Uh, the Jungian, and the concept of the shadow. And so, as the concept of Freddy became commodified over the series, Wes was like, "Well, now we've ruined him. Now we've made him powerless. So we have to find a way to give him power again." And you know, I just thought that was a really fun idea, and it was one of the greatest experiences of my life. Bar none. Uh, Heather Langenkamp is the sweetest human being to work with, and. West is incredibly easygoing and friendly and unpretentious. And another guy who set the bar really high. And actually, Wes did something that I carried with me to this day, which is West is a very democratic filmmaker. And every morning he would show dailies from the day before. He would set up a monitor on the, on the stage or on the you know wherever he was, and so everyone could watch and everyone could see what they did and everyone could see how the story was progressing. And that meant a lot to me, and it made a huge impression and To this day, I try to be an incredibly inclusive producer and I try to pull everyone into it and get everyone kind of their version of authorship on the project.
2: Can you tell me a little bit about your uh, spot on Will and Grace
4: <laughs> oh man you you're i you know you have to understand like i I totally forget everything I've ever done. <laughs>
6: um,
4: Will and Grace is cool because Will and Grace is one of the first comedic turns I did. And so it was, and as someone who I was always surprised at how often or how much time I spent in dramas because I'm not a very serious person in real life. Woman Grace was my first opportunity to do a comedic turn. And even though, you know, he's very much the straight man, it was a really fun space to explore because they're both so ridiculously talented and to be just this catalyst for them to both pee off on. Uh, it was a lot of fun. And it was also fun to try and not tip it one way or the other. It was a fun little balancing act to play this guy who may or may not be interested in one or both of them. His sort of questionable sexuality. It was a very fun space to hold, and it was really fun to watch those two use that as a catalyst and just go off, because they're both such talented improv actors. It was great. It was really fun.
2: Awesome. Going back to Quantum Leap. At the end of uh, The Leap Home Part 2, you say, and uh, it's th- all thanks to you, little brother, when you're embracing Sam or Magic, did you ask like what that line was about, or could you tell me if Tom was supposed to know it was Sam, or just that he was considering like Magic his little brother?
4: <laughs> That's really funny. Oh my gosh, I have to go back now. I think that it was really supposed to have more to do with Sam's way of hearing And I think it had more to do with a a, a colloquialism, you know, between friends Mm. that gets heard, you know, that has, you know, this other deeper meaning for Sam, for the listener. It's a little tricky, and, and I think it was intentionally vague. And I'd like to say I had made some strong decision about it, but I didn't. I just said it with as much heart as possible, because what was easy for me at the time was as a character, to be glad to be alive and and to feel that I owed it to that person under my command,
2: hmm. were you ever into the military or was that like a stretch for you playing a military kind of guy uh,
4: i grew up uh, I grew up in a world of hardcore you know anti vietnam activist liberals uh, that having been said, you know I think that as someone who I would say that most men and those boys have a certain fascination with the military, and I have ended up working with many people in the military as my advisors as both an actor and a writer and a producer, and I've used them for consulting on a ton of projects, and I'm drawn always to people who have... I think the first thing is, you know, regardless of one's opinion about any given war, I think to be in the presence of someone who has devoted a certain chunk of their lives or their lives to, you know, service where they will give their life for others, that instantly commands a certain level of respect. And then you have the next layer or layers of proficiency with a lot of tools and a lot of rules. And to be around people who live these very disciplined lives and who acquire, you know, all proficiency with all these tools is always impressive. And I and I will say that I also, as a writer and as a producer, I spend a lot of time around people who are very good at the various things they do. And the more disciplined that profession is actually, and this is kind of a a tangent, but I, I've worked with the, the Department of Fish and Game. I've been a shooter and producer on patrol with cops. I've been a shooter and producer on patrol with game wardens. And there's always a mutual respect because we're 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 both people who demand a great, you know, proficiency with tools and very strict codes of conduct. And we all seem to get along very well. I think when you're an actor, there's there's so much one, there's the obvious like mistake of thinking that by by playing a soldier you're a badass, or you know, by playing a soldier you know what it's like, because obviously you don't. But it's tempting. It's very tempting to, to try and steep yourself in that world. And I think most boys have a certain level of fascination with the military and the police. And this is a, this is a way to exercise that. But of course it's not real. It's kind of a two part answer. And the first answer is I think all boys, especially young men, have a fascination with all of that stuff for all the obvious macho reasons, even if they're illusions. I think the reality of the military is very different than the, you know, the Hollywood depiction of it. And everybody wants a chance to step into that genre, just like everybody wants a chance to step into a Western. Everybody wants a chance to step into a musical. You know, these are, these are genres that have these powerful lexicons. They've shaped the way we look at ourselves and the way we look at the world. They're, they're as true as the truth, if you will, at this point. So everyone's dying to play that stuff. And I've played it more than a few times and I've worked with them. But I certainly had an awful lot of respect for the people that I worked with. I had a ton of curiosity about how they did what they did and what the procedures were. And, uh, and now having worked with cops and game wardens and, and the military, uh, it still holds. I always look forward to working with these people because they're very reliable and they have a code and they have a great fluency and mastery with the tools.
2: What are you working on currently and what can your fans uh, look for to check out your uh, work?
4: <laughs> I, I, uh, I'm, I'm, well, let's see. I'm, I'm developing projects, as everybody is. All producers are. It's may or may not come to pass. It's actually scripted projects, and no point in talking about that unless they happen. For the last six years, I've been producing, shooting and producing adventure documentary stuff. I, I was lucky enough, like I said, to, to get asked on to work on Deadliest Catch. I did not work on a boat. It's very important that people
2: understand that. That's very scary, Um, that part.
4: It's very impressive. It's very scary. It's very hard. And I puke just standing on the boat. Me as well. I'm not that much of a badass, but I did live up in Dutch Harbor and I did see and shoot a lot of amazing stuff. And that has kind of, you know, launched me headlong into career working with, you know, people in, in extreme environments. Like I said, cops, game wardens, fishermen, subsistence. Uh, subsistence fishermen, hunters, trappers. Um, right now, I'm working on a series for BBC Worldwide that we're producing for Nat Geo. That's about uh, 60 people subsistence living off the coast of Alaska in a small town on one of the biggest islands in the world, on Prince Wales Island. 60 people surrounded by 2,000 wolves. Doesn't have a name yet, so I don't even know. I don't know what to tell people to look for. It'll be on Nat Geo, and it'll be coming out just later this year.
2: Sounds very interesting. I hope it is. <laughs>
4: I got a. I got about 500 hours of footage up here in front of me right now that I'm thinking oh through. Goodness, it's pretty cool. It's pretty amazing. I mean, I I think that you know, as more you know, most of us live lives of great convenience, and I think these this genre has a large amount of draw because it's refreshing and compelling to see people doing, going through great hardship to accomplish even the simplest things. Uh, I think you know. Part of us knows that somewhere deep within us, we ha- our DNA still has that. But most of us live lives of great convenience and ease, so it's amazing to think that even in this day and age, there are people who go through a lot just to get food on the table.
2: When you're working on a show like that, how much of it is the story of stuff that's actually happening and how much of it is the way it's edited together to create like a new narrative?
4: Uh, you know, it really depends on the show, and, and I, I'll be very honest with you. Sometimes you have to think of a way and almost you have to think of a cinematic technique to dramatize what they're doing because what they're doing in reality, the, the, the events aren't that interesting. But, you know, in other words, if you just showed what they were doing, it wouldn't be that interesting. So you have to find a way cinematically to dramatize what they're doing. And in that way, you know, there are some reality shows that you know, what do people say? Like, you know, the myth is truer than the reality. <laughs> so right. we're mythologizing the work they do because that way we can get at a, at a psychological reality or an emotional reality that otherwise wouldn't play. I mean, and, you know, look, a lot of times it's just pure... B- a lot of times, you know, you have to deliver... I always say, when you're making a documentary, you have to you have to deliver 90 minutes of story. When you're making a documentary TV series, you have to deliver five years of story. Deadliest Catch is on season 11. And so there's no way to do that if you aren't finding some way to generate story in the field, and if you happen to have a subject that's just endlessly compelling, you know good on you, but at a certain point, any documentary series is going to have to you know I, and not necessarily invent whole cloth but find ways to frame things which are compelling to an audience. It always has to be entertaining at the end of the day, no matter what it is, and so you have to find some way to make the mundane compelling and entertaining. Not hmm. easy.
2: I like that. <laughs> what was it like being on a helicopter? <laughs> um,
4: well, I had, I had just worked in a helicopter a year earlier. I worked, uh, I I used to live up in Park City, Utah, after I got out of college, and I worked on a, a blasting crew. It's called jugging. It's uh, laying down cables. Seismic research, you, uh, I don't know if they still do it this way, but back in the day, you'd hire crews, uh, and they would load you up in helicopters and drop you off in wilderness areas and you would follow the survey line and you'd be laying cable and you'd you'd be laying cables that were 75 pounds each and you'd link them up cable to cable to cable over a series of miles and then they'd drop a thing called a doghouse and that was a seismic shack and you'd run all your wires into that and there'd be a guy there and you'd blow the line up, literally lay dynamite along it and blow the line up and he'd take a seismic reading to see if there's oil-bearing shale along the line. It was grunt work, uh, and the only payoff, really, because it was also minimum wage, was that I got to fly in a helicopter to and from work every day. So I had just done that. So I, I knew how to comport myself in a helicopter when I got the job. Maybe that's the only reason I got it. Um, <laughs> but it was it was really fun. I mean, it was great.
2: Do you have any uh, stories or anecdotes about uh, Quantum Leap that you can remember, or maybe not even from Quantum Leap, something that happened to you from being on that?
4: I have two anecdotes. And one was my first main lesson in acting, which was, uh, I was in a scene by the helicopter with Scott and Dean Stockwell and a couple of the other guys and we were trying to, we were making a plan for the next day. And I kept interrupting because Dean, you know, you do the scene once and then Dean Stockwell would step in and you would do it again so that they could, they could intercut at will and he would either be there or not be there, depending upon whose point of view it was ran the scene uh, without him there the first couple of times and then Dean stepped in to do the scene and I kept blowing over his lines because I just I didn't the rhythm was off and I and I and I wasn't listening for him. And finally I, I just I was completely embarrassed and I said, I'm so sorry, Mr Stockwell I I'm so sorry. I, I I keep stepping on your lines and he goes, Kid, I don't care about my lines, just stay the f out of my light <laughs> So that's my first rule that was my first rule of acting <laughs> uh, and I've used, it, I've used it on other people many times. That's funny. And then the second was that uh, Tia Carrere, who at that point was just, uh, you know, unbeknown to a lot of people because she was dressed up as a Chihoi and that always dirty and grubby, but was a stunningly beautiful woman, had become my friend. And as I said... For a variety of reasons, mostly I think to just get the best effect he could. The director of the second episode, Michael, was really giving me a hard time and he, he really beat the crap out of me. And uh when we were back over at Universal, she witnessed him giving me a really hard time, and so uh, she got you know, she got wrapped a little earlier than I did in the day, and uh and then unbeknownst to me actually, um, she went home. And dressed up and put on a lot of makeup and everything, and came back. And then when I got wrapped, right uh, as Michael was giving me an issue, I rapped, She came walking onto the soundstage and linked her arm around mine and walked me off stage. Which is really one of the best saves I've ever had in my
2: life. It <laughs> oh, sounds like a perfect ending. <laughs> no, you yeah.
4: it wasn't an ending, but it was a nice moment.
2: Thank you so much.
4: Absolutely.
5: Was a really great interview. Yeah, I really like to hear his take on filming of the episodes. It's, it's really awesome. And his story with Tia Carrera, that, that was really cool that she was so supportive of him. It was also cool to find out what he's into right now and what he's doing in Hollywood and uh, about reality shows. That was a cool thing to know too.
2: For me, it was cool to get an honest, accurate opinion of how he felt filming Quantum Leap. And yeah, that Tia Carrera story was great. Thank you, David. And we have one other person on our show today.
5: None other than
2: Andrea Thompson.
5: How awesome.
2: Very excited for this one because I'm a big fan.
5: Because you have a big crush
2: on her lenses. (sighs) I do have some crushes on Quantum Leap, and I'm lucky enough that I get to talk to them. One of Andrea Thompson's first appearances was in Delirious with the late John Candy and in Oliver Stone's acclaimed film, Wall Street. She then went on to the television series, Falcon Crest, earning a Soap Opera Digest Award nomination for her performance. Andrea then starred as Talia Winters on the popular syndicated series, Babylon 5. She then followed this with a role in the television drama, Jag. She also starred in the feature film, A Gun, A Car, A Blonde, which premiered at the 1997 Sundance Film Festival all before taking on a starring role on NYPD Blue and becoming a journalist for a CBS affiliate and for CNN Headline News. But of course, us Leapers know her as Maggie Dawson, the photographer in Vietnam in search of the perfect photo to win the Pulitzer Prize. Hello, this is Albie from the Quantum Leap Podcast. Very nice to speak with you. Hi, Hi. how are you? Good, thank you for being on the show.
0: Oh, my pleasure.
2: Tell me... Everything you can remember about your time filming the Quantum Leap episode, The Leap Home Part 2, Vietnam.
0: It was an extraordinary effort on the part of the producers of the show. They literally had to pump thousands of gallons of water. They raised the water table in the location to make it appear to be Vietnam. I mean, it, it was a... A phenomenal undertaking and I'm certain a very expensive undertaking to pump that much water into that area so that we could give a realistic feel to the show. And that was what stands out for me, most of all, is how committed they were to creating the appropriate environment.
2: Where was this filmed? What was the location?
0: Corona, which is desert. (laughs) I mean, it's desert. And uh, the other thing that stands out for me is that the guy that uh, was the pilot of the helicopter, Mm -hmm. I mean, there was a shot, it was a very brief shot, 30 seconds perhaps, where I was kneeling on the edge of the open helicopter door taking photographs. That took six hours to shoot. But our pilot was an actual Vietnam veteran, and he took us up in the helicopter and was recounting stories of his time in service, and he was turning the helicopter on its side and chopping grass. You know, I mean, it was, you know, we're we're talking about six-foot-tall vegetation, but he was chopping grass while while we were circling the spot where we would be filming, and I was sitting in the back of the helicopter with one of the finest stunt coordinators in Hollywood, a guy named Diamond Farnsworth, and Diamond had a strap around my waist so that I could, you know, kneel on the door of this helicopter and take my photograph. And I looked at him and I said, "Diamond, do me a favor. Put your hand down the back of my pants and hang on for dear life." <laughs> and, and he literally had his hand down the back of my pants, hanging onto the strap, so that you know to alleviate my fears of falling out of the helicopter. It was incredible. And, uh, you know, it, just a, a little piece of trivia. It was the weekend. Gosh, on Friday, when I found out I had the job, the script called for me to be in a PT boat. By Monday, it was a helicopter. And over the weekend, I'm trying to think who it was, famous musician, TV Ray Vaughn, died in a helicopter accident. Oh my goodness. And I was a huge Stevie Ray Vaughan fan, and uh, you know, to have this happen at the same time that I was about to do a stunt was, uh, to say the very least, disturbing for me.
2: So, were you scared to be on the helicopter?
0: Oh, sure. I was. Sure. I mean, as yeah, as an actor, I mean, you have to you have to mind yourself. Mm-hmm. You know, you have to mind yourself. You have to. You have to. Speak up. You have to be concerned with your own security. I don't believe in being a victim. One has to uh, keep oneself safe. Even though there are all kinds of safety measures on every set, it's really up to the performer to ask the appropriate questions. So, And take the appropriate measures. And my measure at that point in time was to say, Diamond, put your hand down the back of my pants.
2: <laughs> I'm sure he didn't mind.
0: He was a total professional.
2: <laughs> yeah, he's, he's, a, he's a great guy. I was able to talk to him.
0: Oh, were you? Yeah. Oh, my gosh. Isn't he fabulous?
2: Yeah, great stories. He's led a great life. Yeah. Yeah, ever since uh, the Twilight Zone movie thing, uh, helicopters on screen always frighten me.
0: Well, you know, I mean, uh, there have been some extraordinary accidents over the years, and later, long after I did Quantum Leap, I was in New Zealand filming a, a movie, and... uh It was called, I think, Kiwi Adventure. Probably went straight to video. Um, But there was a scene that we were supposed to film where we were in a canyon on the edge of a cliff, and the helicopter was to, according to the script, rise into the shot, and we were supposed to be standing on the edge of this cliff. I have a rudimentary understanding of aeronautics. And for me, I had to voice my concern and call my union rep saying, okay, I, I understand what's required of me. However, what if there is wind gust? What if there, you know, because when you're filming in a canyon, it's a different set of circumstances that you have to deal with in terms of weather conditions, in terms of uh, wind conditions, and whatever can happen. And my union rep agreed with me. He said, no, I, 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 I agree that this presents possible danger so i might have been looked at as a pain in the butt on set but i still had my head
2: well that's important you want to survive the the shoot right (laughs) oh yeah what was it like filming the episode the leap home part two uh a lot of the uh guest stars on that show became well known afterwards
0: oh tia was incredible incredible lovely girl Loved working with her um Loved working with Scott Bakula. I mean, the entire cast was amazing. Really amazing. And all the guest stars were amazing, too. I mean, it was uh, one of those shows where there was a lot of care put into every single episode, and most particularly in supporting actors in guest star roles. How was the director? Director was a fabulous guy. And once again, I uh, cared deeply about the finished product.
2: You played the part of Maggie Dawson. She was a photographer. Had you ever uh, used a camera before like that or did you have to act like you knew how to do it or did you get some training?
0: No, I mean I, you know, I I grew up as a camera buff. I mean, you know, taking a photograph today is so much different than taking a photograph then. Um I had my stepfather's Nikon for years and years, and, you know, I played around with filters and with automatic shots and things like that. So, you know, I was very familiar with the camera. It was just an interesting part of the role that I I was able to employ my own experiences.
2: Was there any film in the camera?
0: Oh, during the show, no. (laughs) No. (laughs) Okay. It's all props.
2: Can we talk a little bit about Babylon 5? I love that show, and uh, you're amazing on it.
0: Sure, uh, especially since you told me I'm an, I, I was amazing on it. Oh. <laughs> you can definitely yeah. talk about that.
2: Can you tell me a little about uh, your experience filming it?
0: It was an extraordinary show, top to bottom. I'm still in contact with and still friends with many of the people I worked with. It was just it. It, it was such an amazing show that sought to break the mold. JMS. His writing was extraordinary, and we were all really fortunate to be there. I still feel that way, still, to this day, and we're talking about 92. I have a son who's 23, and he was an infant, so, yeah.
2: (laughs) Uh, Is is that uh, where most of your fan base is, from Babylon 5?
0: Oh, no, no, no. I mean, I have fans from a number of shows, but I would say that there are no fans as devoted as... uh, fans of sci-fi, fans of Babylon
2: 5. Amazing show. You are the first CNN reporter I've ever talked to.
0: <laughs> what
2: what, okay. what is that like? I mean, that that's amazing. I watched uh, your, I guess, demo reel from uh, the news and stuff, and you seem so intelligent right. and so well-spoken. I had no idea there was that other side of you besides your acting. Is that like acting itself, or is that something totally different?
0: No, it's completely different. For me, it was about... When you're an actor, very often you, you live in a bubble um, where there's security, there are people who bring you breakfast, there are people who do your hair, do your makeup, design your clothes, deconstruct jackets, and make them exactly for you. To be a reporter is to be on the ground in a very real way, connecting with very real people about stories that affect us all. Uh, it was an incredible incredible privilege to do all the stories I did during that period of time, not only for CNN, but for CBS News beforehand where I was an investigative and breaking news reporter. And I deliberately sought that experience because I, I felt disconnected from the real world. Having been an actor, I felt shielded and I sought to experience life in a way that I had not done so before, and to pursue a passion for journalism that I had always had.
2: A lot of times I'm watching CNN or the news, and I can't imagine, like, being the person covering a story, like, so horrible or, like, emotional. And uh, have you ever had those times where you had such a story where you were reporting on it that it was so heavy? How do you deal with that?
0: Well, I came to CNN because... CNN Headline News had been a recorded, tape-recorded show for 20 years. So I came to CNN, and seven weeks later, 9-11 happened. Yeah. yeah. Um, So, it, 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 yeah, I mean, nothing about that was expected. Um, As a country, we didn't expect any of that. It was... um, it was an extraordinary time to go through. It was extremely disturbing, and I had to do what all of my colleagues did, which was to show up for work and and work despite our feelings, despite our despair, despite our fears, to deliver the story in an accurate manner.
2: You kind of have to disconnect while you're doing it, almost, from you can't really absorb it while you're doing it?
0: Well, you absorb it, but You can't react. Yeah. You can't react and maintain professionalism.
2: On the flip side, I'm sure you've done a lot of things that were fun and exciting when you were doing that. What were one of the best memories you have of doing that?
0: Doing CNN? Yeah. Oh.
2: Sorry, I'm a little bit of a CNN junkie sometimes, so it's it's, it's interesting to me. (laughs)
0: Yeah, I'm a CNN junkie (laughs) too. Uh, Well, I mean, there were plenty of things that were, you know, fun to cover. I mean, there's a clip that's, on the internet about viagra ceviche apparently <laughs> you know there was a restaurant in in Los Angeles that was sued for calling their ceviche viagra ceviche there was another restaurant in LA that was highlighted because they served a salad that apparently had properties that would and women into labor who were overdue. Uh, there was another story about a guy who was shaving ads in the back of his head. He would have his hair cut. You know, he would put himself out to hire for various companies to shave an ad in the back of his head. Um, very similar to what we have these days with car wraps and things like that. Yeah, I mean, I had loads of fun. I had loads of fun, and there were great stories to cover.
2: Going back to Quantum Leap, I love the scene in the tent with you and Scott Bakula. There seemed to be, like, a real chemistry there. Can you tell me about the filming that day and where that was? Was it, like, in a soundstage or...?
0: Uh, Yeah, it was on a soundstage. I mean, look, it's not hard to have chemistry with Scott Bakula. <laughs>
2: yeah,
0: look at him. <laughs> Even now, he's... I, I i don't know how old is Scott now.
2: He's, he's getting up there, but he doesn't look at it all.
0: He's in his 60s, I think.
2: Yeah. Yeah, I think he just turned 60.
0: Yeah. So what's not to like? <laughs> it was a great day, uh, great shoot. We did have nice chemistry. We had a good rapport. And uh, we had good writing. And and it always comes down to that when you're an actor, is, is good writing.
2: What did you think of your character in that episode?
0: Loved my character. Loved her. From the moment when I did the audition, I went in and I was wearing a dress and heels. And halfway through the audition, the heel of my high heel shoes snapped off. So, and it was, you know, the audition for the bar scene, MacArthur signed it twice, blah, blah, blah. And I just took my shoes off and continued the audition barefoot. Everything about this character was amazing and strong. And keep in mind, we're going back to a time when women were not doing the things that women do in film right now, where you have Angelina Jolie punching up guys, and women doing completely... During the time that I worked, when I came up in the business, women were essentially an appendage to a man. We were either there to show that they were heterosexual or we were there to show that they were relevant, that we were kind of a sidebar. Quantum Leap was really groundbreaking in uh, in this particular role in showing that women were positive people and that we had a lot to offer. And for me, that was a big deal. I got in trouble on various jobs over the years and saying, well, why would my character do that? Why? Why would she stand across from the man she loved and just scream instead of, you know, rushing in and throwing a punch? Mm. And I really adored that job because it was a woman who who walked it like she talked it.
2: There was good writing on that show for women, too, because I think one of the co-executive producers, Deborah Pratt, had a lot of influence on that. Yeah. 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 Good. Good show. Can you remember anything else from uh, your time on Quantum Leap?
0: Um, Hot. Sweaty, tired, dirty, you know, everything you love about a shoot. It it was just very gratifying work.
2: Can you tell me about how you got into acting? I see one of your first jobs was in Wall Street.
0: Yeah, it was. Well, I always aspired to be an actor. I didn't have the privilege of being an actor until I was 16. And uh, Wall Street was a big transition for me from being a a theatrical actor to a film actor. And the opportunity to work with Oliver Stone was extraordinary. It was right after Platoon had come out. And Charlie Sheen. Charlie Sheen was, after Platoon, one of the most amazing actors to work with. So I've been very fortunate all along the way. I don't have any bad Hollywood stories. None.
2: Really? That's good. That's good.
0: Yeah. I've been very fortunate.
2: You've been on some uh, great shows like Bones in 24 and JAG. What are some of your favorite experiences in film and television that you've had? <laughs>
0: I would say NYPD Blue is the most fun experiences I've ever had. It was just an extraordinary group of actors, extraordinarily talented group of actors. And it wasn't a single diva on the set. Not one. We all... Came to work each day, grateful to be there, and as an actor, that's the best of all possible world.
2: One of the things you're known for, besides, of course, acting, is your amazing voice. It's uh, very sexy, if I may say.
0: Well, thank you.
2: You've done some voice work. Tell me about that.
0: I haven't done any voice work lately. I'm a real estate agent in Los Angeles. I love what I do. I spend a lot of time with my son. I'm able to craft my own schedule. The voiceover aspect of my career was fantastic at one period of time, but like any other career, it requires a lot of care and maintenance and I don't have the time for that now. I need a conscious transition to real estate because I'm a pragmatist. I understand that, for the most part, there are exceptions that the life of an actress in Hollywood is brief. and I didn't want to be one of those actresses sitting at home waiting for my agent to call so I could do my Norma Desmond. I want and continue to want to be relevant. So I've applied myself in an area that can carry me to the end of my life. I mean, I can be an 85-year-old relic and still sell beautiful real estate take care of my clients. And I don't know if that would be true of voiceover work and certainly not of acting
6: work.
2: Do you ever see yourself getting back into acting here and there if the opportunity arose?
0: At this point in time, no. But I would say never say never.
2: Do you ever get uh, clients when you're showing houses that are like kind of starstruck by you when they meet you?
0: No, not so much because I don't broadcast that. I don't broadcast the fact that that's where I came from. I think that there are a number of my clients who find it comforting to know that I came from the same place they came from. Mm. So I understand their concerns, I understand their desires for either total privacy and I also understand their concerns for wanting to publicize their purchase, their sale. It's coming from a place that people in entertainment feel comfortable with.
2: To wrap up the interview is there anything you'd like to say to the quantum leap fans that uh really enjoyed your performance in that episode
0: thank you for watching and thank you for your continued allegiance i mean it's amazing to me that a job that i did back in 1989 is still relevant for fans it's a real privilege
5: was another great interview these are it's so cool to get insight into the behind the scenes that we don't really get especially watching it on netflix a lot of the times we don't really get the behind the scenes that we we get the privilege of watching you know on blu-rays and stuff today so it's really nice to hear and you're the one interviewing them so you get to even ask our questions which is awesome i'm a happy host yeah and I'm sure you liked hearing about CNN.
2: Yeah, that's great. Uh, I don't watch the news regularly, but when I do, it's CNN. (laughs) Yeah.
5: There are days where there's CNN marathons at our house.
2: Yes, when something really bad happens, unfortunately, or something cool sometimes. Yeah. But she was a really great CNN reporter. That's cool.
5: And she seemed really well-spoken, which I'm sure comes from like CNN reporting and, and having to be live on camera. She's good at public speaking. Dude. Obviously, we're not. <laughs> dude was just your answer. <laughs> dude,
2: dude, I got to talk to Andrea Thompson. Dude. And it was cool to find out more about Babylon 5. So great interviews. Thank you, David Newsom. Thank you, Andrea Thompson. And now I'd like to talk about a little giveaway we're having. We have three high quality prints of the picture of Scott Bakula and Dean Stockwell from the final episode of Quantum Leap. And they're provided courtesy of Skipper Martin. All you have to do is email us at quantumlypodcast at gmail.com and let us know that you would like an entry into the giveaway, and you will be entered into the giveaway. We will be giving away one of these prints per episode for this episode and the two after. You have to listen to the show, which you're doing, thank you very much, to get the code to send us. The code for this episode and for the first print giveaway is 47.30. So just email us, put that in the subject line, 47.30, and we'll know that you want to be entered in the print giveaway.
5: And now it's time for our segment with Chris Philippus.
7: Welcome, everyone. I'm Christopher DeFilippis. A few months ago, I ribbed Quantum Leap podcast hosts Heather and Albie for approaching Quantum Leap as if the historical era Sam lept to were representative of American society in the 1990s rather than a 90s deconstruction of the attitudes and sins of the 1950s, 60s, and 70s. Watching the show back then, I was confident that fellow viewers and most Americans were in accord with QL's broad moral lessons. Of course, women deserve equality. Racism is bad, duh. To an optimistic 20-year- old, the growing acceptance of these ideals didn’t only seem assured, they were a fait accompli as we raced toward the promise of the 21st century. Now, I'm not so certain. To be sure, recent history has borne witness to some amazing social progress. A black president. The Supreme Court's recent ruling on marriage equality. These things give me hope that we're still headed in the right direction. But then I read about recently adopted Texas education standards that basically mandate teachers to say that slavery wasn't the primary cause of the Civil War. Or that Gamergate lunatics have threatened to rape and kill yet another woman for having the audacity to speak out against sexism. Or that a racist gunman murdered nine people in a South Carolina church simply because they were black. Further quashing my hopes for the future is that instead of sparking debate that might culminate in a national movement for change, these events have only fed the fire of partisan rancor that defines our times, becoming nothing more than fodder for Twitter wars and dumb Facebook memes. Take the Charleston church shooting. Instead of spurring a meaningful discussion about the consequences of generations of institutionalized racism, the conversation about those nine tragic deaths has degenerated into arguments about banning the Confederate flag and a Facebook frenzy over Nick at Night pulling reruns of the Dukes of Hazzard because of the General Lee. I can't think of any greater insult to the memory of those slain. Even when I was watching it at age nine, I realized that the Dukes of Hazzard was maybe the dumbest show ever made. But now there are legions of people rallying around it as if it were some Kind of sacrosanct cultural touchstone. And it's a reaction to the misguided far left philosophy that you can eliminate racist fanaticism by outlawing the words or symbols that are associated with it. But saying you can help end racism by banning the Confederate flag is like saying you can cure cancer by tearing up your biopsy results. Banning words and symbols will do nothing if you don't address the underlying prejudices and hatreds they represent. And censorship can only hinder that process. Censorship. Even well-meaning self-censorship is dangerous, and doing it in the name of social progress doesn't make it any less detrimental than an entire state deciding to whitewash its history books. I used to believe that the truth will out, that social injustices were inevitably fated to evaporate as society evolved. But now I know that isn't the case. The truth needs help. Big time, But you can't legislate ignorance and intolerance away, and you can't rely on those who fan the fires of hatred to suddenly see the world in a different light. The only way to fight them is to be smarter than they are, louder than they are, to hammer your message of hope and tolerance home again and again and again and again to anyone who will listen. Until intolerance is just another insane idea that humanity has examined and discarded, like that of a flat Earth or Milli Vanilli. And that's something that Quantum Leap helps us to do, as the Quantum Leap podcast helped me to realize. When I heard Alby talk about how the positive, inclusive messages in Quantum Leap played such a formative role in shaping his worldview, I suddenly saw the show in an entirely different light. I had always considered Quantum Leap to be beating a very well-worn, idealistic drum. But Albie and Heather made me realize that every generation needs to hear those beats for a first time. Thanks, guys. Quantum Leap proves the adage that everything old is new again. Sam never had the luxury of sidestepping an uncomfortable issue by focusing on the meaningless ephemera that surrounded it. He was always down in the trenches, hitting the problem head-on until something gave, working until he effected some kind of positive change. It's a lesson we somehow seem to have forgotten, and one that we need to continuously reteach ourselves if we ever want the truth to will out.
2: Thank you, Chris. Very well said, very well spoken, and... There are a lot of good things happening, a lot of bad things happening lately. It's a strange time, but uh, a great thing that happened is marriage equality. We talked about that in an earlier episode at length, and I'm glad that finally we're the uh, like the 17th country to finally make that right decision. <laughs> Not a world leader in that area, but hey, now it's cool.
5: Yeah, I don't think when it comes to um, progressive thinking that we're usually the first country. I think that his segment is very important. I I think it was really well written and it speaks a lot about ignorance and it's still very much around today. And it's really sad that a lot has changed, but a lot is still the same. I was never really a big fan of the Confederate flag because (laughs) I was from the North. That's good, yeah. But no, I'm just saying, like there's the the argument around the Confederate flag, I don't really get because I'm not from the South and I think that it's like people, instead of what it originally represented, take it out of context and make it a representation of the South. And I'm not from the South. So I don't think I I relate to that.
2: I'm not a fan of flags in general. Usually every flag means this is what I represent and this is why I'm better than you. And in that case, it definitely means racism. So it's good that uh, different governments are taking uh, flag that means racism down. It's it's sad. I, I
5: don't think that it's going to change people's minds about racism, like Chris had pointed out. Like, I don't think that. But I, but I also don't think it's a bad move.
2: I think it's a good move that governments don't fly that flag.
5: I think that we've come so far that I don't know why that's still a problem. Like, I don't understand why racism is even a thing. I think that everybody is due the same opportunities, especially today. And it's sad when that doesn't happen. And I know that there's still sexism is still a thing and racism is still a thing. We even talked about it earlier with women using their attributes and men just kind of, you know, the way they are. But that plays a role in our society. Racism is still very much prevalent. And I think that a lot of people don't know how to handle that situation. I know that it's a very heated topic and I have friends on both sides of that. And and it's such a thing that. I know it needs to be talked about, but I feel like everybody is so wrapped up in their opinion of racism. I've had to unfollow a lot of people on Facebook recently. And it's not because I don't want to see people's opinions. I understand that everybody's entitled to their opinion, but when you're posting things like why is there no white history month on Facebook? I mean, it's just like I feel like that's a, that's such a big problem. Get out of your own head and realize that for the bigger good, we all just need to get along. And I I sound like such a hippie, but I mean, I don't think that your skin killer is something to be proud of. I feel like we're all just people. And I think that that's something that people are so wrapped up in their own opinions that sometimes it becomes a problem. And that can go with anything. That can go with gay marriage, with sexism, with racism. People are wrapped up in their own opinions so much that they're not willing to see another possibility. And even with gay marriage, yeah, we made a big progress. But now North Carolina is trying to pass a bill that says that anyone can be denied, even interracial couples. Are you kidding me? Yeah. Let's not take a step back in this country. <laughs> Let's, we're progressing here.
2: Very ironic that North Carolina is less progressive than South Carolina, because I think that's where the divide <laughs> of the... Well, it's very confusing.
5: at this point, our whole country was because we wanted equality for everybody. Mm-hmm. Yes, I know it says for men. In the Constitution, equality for man, but I think man it means as a species, man, mankind, not as not, a gender. no. right, like not as, and I think if everybody stepped back out of their opinions a little bit and tried to understand other point of views, we would be okay. But I think that's our main our main issue.
2: I had a similar opinion to Chris. As in, of course, racism is bad. Of course, sexism is bad. Everybody knows this, but not everybody knows no, this. No,
5: not everybody knows
2: this. Luckily, I didn't have to remove as many people on Facebook as you did because I have a zero tolerance policy. If it's something racist, I, I unfollow them. If it's something sexist, I unfollow them. If it's something anti-marriage equality, I unfollow them. So when Pride Month came about, my Facebook was very happy and full of rainbows.
5: For the most part, mine was too. And but A lot lately. I guess it's good and bad that we have social media now because yes, you get to get the word out about your cause and and, you know, you get more people involved in and you bring more people together globally on a good cause. But it can also be very detrimental and there's so many things, memes that are wrong that someone creates in their basement and then gets shared on the internet for people to believe, and they're like, oh, yeah, I'm going to go against that. And it can be a very scary place. I like the Quantum Leap morals, and I thought that that was a basis for good and bad.
2: And, of course, that whole thing that happened in Missouri, it's just a crazy time right now in the U.S.
5: Yeah. It makes me very sad.
2: A lot of things going on that uh shouldn't be. A lot more people should have watched Quantum Leap, I think.
5: Yeah. But we've talked about that being mandatory in schools, right? It's a good idea.
2: (laughs) And now it's time for some feedback.
5: Let's start off with some feedback from Facebook. And this first one's from Doug Palumbo. I'm really enjoying listening to the podcast. It's making me go back and rewatch some great episodes. I'm a big Quantum Leap fan from day one, and your podcast is a nice companion to the show.
2: Well, thank you, Doug. That's our goal. Thanks for listening. And thanks for sending some feedback. This one's from Soto Carmina. Hey everyone at Quantum Leap Podcast. I love, love your podcast. I've always been a big fan of the show, and this brings great memories of when I first saw it. I love the interaction between Albie and Heather, and I love that you guys are interviewing actors from the show, especially your interview with Scott. Keep up the great work. I look forward to each podcast and your discussion of each episode. Thank you so much. That's awesome.
5: Yeah, and we have one from Skipper Martin. He's awesome. <laughs> the Quantumly Podcast scored big, landing an interview with Sam Beck and himself, Scott Bakula. Well, that's really cool. We did score pretty big with that.
1: <laughs> These emails will be read by Juan.
5: This first one is from Barbara Noel, referring to "Goodnight, Dear Heart.
1: Dearest Albie and Heather. I'm actually still playing catch-up with the podcasts, but absolutely had to spoil myself and listen to the Quantum Leap episode for Season 3, The Opener. My friends told me you read my email in that episode, and I was so very excited. I feel like a member of an awesome family now, because of that, and for all things Quantum Leap. Okay, getting back to the schedule of things. Regarding this episode, Good night, dear heart. I loved this episode. It is one of my favorites. Albie, was that a reference to Scooby-Doo when you said, she the murderer, would have gotten away with it if it weren't for the meddling time Trevor and his hologram? That's cool if it was. I like that stuff too. I, too, felt very bad for Greg. I mean, how cold is his dad? Telling him to suck it up. I'm guessing that Sam was sympathetic to Greg. It's cool that it was Robert Duncan McNeil's birthday on November 9th. Thank you, Albie, for taking the time to discover and share that with us. Sincerely appreciated. On a side note, I thought it was funny how Marcia Cross was on Quantum Leap as the murderer, And then on Desperate Housewives, Scott Bakula appears as a guest and defends Marcia's character as her lawyer. High five to Albie about the German translation. Also, I looked it up, and Mein Leib for Emer means my love forever. Sorry for being nitpicky. Thank you for sharing the Jennifer Runyon interview. I enjoyed it thoroughly. I loved that she got to be the lucky girl to kiss Scott Bakula first. The first kiss on Quantum Leap. Lucky Jennifer Runyon. I enjoyed your segments called The Burger Theory, It makes me think, so in a future feedback, I might share my ideas on the burger theory. Thanks ever so much for being the most awesomest podcast show ever, and about Quantum Leap. Keep up the excellent work. No pressure, though. Sincerely and respectfully, yours, Barbara Noel.
2: Well, thank you, Barbara. I totally agree that this is the most awesome podcast show ever. I listen to it all the time.
5: (laughs) Thank you so much for all your kind words. It feels like a long time ago that we covered that episode. But yeah, poor Greg.
2: I still love the burger theory. There's a lot of burger theory still. I don't mention it a lot, but a lot of things still connect to other things, and I still don't know why. According to Deborah, nothing was conscious about that, but... <laughs> Deborah's like, you're crazy, <laughs> but whatever. She wanted to probably say, you're seeing stuff that's not there. But you know, that's what I do. I
5: look. <laughs> you're like, the apple boxes match. <laughs> and she's like, okay. Okay. You're one of those it's, crazy it's people. just something in the garage. <laughs> Calm
2: down. All right, and this next one's from Jonathan Young.
1: Hello, all. Just wanted to say that I've been a huge fan on Quantum Leap since I was seven years old. I am 31 now. I remember my uncle getting me hooked onto the show when it used to rerun at 11 p.m. on the USA Network, and I even caught a few episodes on NBC. Season 5 from Return and Revenge of the Evil Leaper until the finale. Long intro, but my question is, what is your favorite season of Quantum Leap? My favorite season has to be season 5. Don't get me wrong, I love every season, but maybe because of how the writers tried to delve deeper into the world they created, get more into the science fiction aspect, we get to see what Al has to deal with with the Leapies in the waiting chamber in the future, we got the evil Leaper, Sam leaps into Elvis, tries to save Marilyn Monroe's life, the trilogy episodes, I don't know, it was just a great creative season in my opinion. So my question to you is, what is your favorite Quantum Leap season? Love the podcast and continue the great work. Jonathan Young.
2: Okay, well, basically he's asking Heather is, what's your favorite season of Quantum Leap? And you have two and a little bit to go by.
5: I'm sure this question is more for you than it is for me. But you know what? I've realized lately, the more people we actually meet that listen to the show or come talk to us on social media and stuff, they actually think that this is an act, that I've actually seen the whole show. I'm telling you, I have not. I really have not. And and a lot of people are shocked. But yeah, I, I only have season one and season two. I liked the beginning. I still loved the Genesis two-parter. That That's an awesome episode. But I love that we're getting more into the characters and it's developing more. And of course, after the M.I.A. and Leap Home Part 1 and 2. I mean, that's like a crazy story arc. So I love where it's going, and I don't really think I have a favorite yet because I don't really have much to pick from, but I love where it's going. So what's your favorite season?
2: That's very difficult because for me, when it ran in reruns on USA and then later on the Sci-Fi channel, I watched it nonstop. This was before the world of Netflix where you could watch it all the time. So if it was on, I watched it. And uh, I've seen the episode so many times. I can't really pick out a season that is my favorite because I don't really think there's a bad season. They're all really good to me. I know season five gets a lot of flack from a lot of people because they changed up the rules a little bit or didn't follow the rules that they set up.
5: I think we've decided that there really aren't any (laughs) rules. (laughs) Exactly.
2: And if it's a good story, it's a good story. And You know, just uh, my favorite episodes, if I list them out like I do all the time, they really span the whole series, so... I don't think I have a favorite season.
5: If you had to pick one, just pick one.
2: Uh, I'm going to say season three, just because that's what we're watching now. So that's my favorite. All right. It's got a lot of good ones in it, and I'm looking forward to going through it with you and uh, with everybody else.
5: Okay, we have another one from Barbara Noel. She must be catching up really fast. This one's about leaping without a net. Oh, awesome.
1: Dearest Albie and Heather. This episode made me have even more respect for Scott Bakula. Oh my gosh, how he suffers for his work and his fans. But it is all so very much appreciated. But of course, as was stated, when he couldn't do it, he got that stunt double Bob. Was that his name? Poor, sweet, lovable Scott. God bless him. I, too, think about Annette Funicello or whoever when I hear the title of the episode. Anyway, when speaking about the dad in this episode, it makes me think about the dad in the previous episode referring to goodnight, dear heart. Although he wasn't a main character as in this episode, he was still very cold towards his son. Or at least I thought so. I mean, the troubles he was having was enough for Sam. And to have to catch the triple from his sister? Thank you for sharing the interview with Tommy Thompson. I thought it was very interesting. I loved it when Albie mentioned the episode Tommy Thompson wrote about the actor who was kidnapped by the crazy people who only wanted to have the ability to have a child. And when Albie mentions about the grandmother spinning around in her wheelchair, as played by an actress I adore. I best remember her as Fonzie's grandma, Noosebaum, on Happy Days from back in the 70s. I don't know, are there other listeners out there that used to watch that? And do they remember her on Happy Days? I think her name was Frances Bay. Anyway, I just like that very much. Not wanting to be prejudiced or hurt anyone's feelings, I just noticed a common thread with Tommy Thompson's stories. Besides the thing with the family, I think that's great, of course. Family comes first, but also, I noticed that the stories involve a lot of physicality and physical injuries. Is it perhaps because of the accident he had way back when, or am I reading too much into that? It was just very interesting. A question, if I may ask, just curious to know where you get those interviews with Scott in front of the audience on a talk show, as in this case when he mentioned about his motion sickness. Not meaning to kill the goose that lays the golden egg, but I enjoy hearing those, and just wanted to hear Scott interviews on my own, or even to hear the interviews in their entirety. Thanks in advance. Sincerely and respectfully yours, Barbara Noel.
2: Thank you, Barbara. Of course I remember Happy Days. That's an awesome show. Yeah, I
5: love that show.
2: <laughs> Sunday, Monday, happy days. Thursday, Friday, happy days. Did you skip a couple days in the middle? I might have.
5: Wednesday, okay. Thursday, happy I'm not
2: going to sing. Um,
5: <laughs> Thank you.
2: <laughs> <laughs> we get those clips from all different places of Scott Bakula and Dean Stockwell and other people talking about episodes of Quantum Leap. A lot of them come from YouTube and uh, some of them come from the Leap Back quantum leap convention from 2009 that brian green helped organize the guy from
1: al's place
5: and this one is from donnie
1: hey heather and albie i wanted to relay a quick story i heard about scott Bakula. my childhood friend armando Leduc is an actor in new orleans and he recently guest-starred in the episode of ncis new orleans the episode was rockabye baby about the kidnapping of baby lulu and he played the grocery clerk jorge gomez Armando called me as soon as he was finished filming because he knows what a big Quantum Leap fan I am. He told me that Scott is the nicest actor he's ever worked with, which I hear pretty often from other actors on your podcast. He even texted me a picture that Scott took with him. It was so nice to hear that my childhood hero is actually a nice person in real life. On a different note, I'm really enjoying the podcast. The interviews have been incredible. Keep up the great work. Donnie.
2: Scott Bakula is an awesome person. He really is. I haven't heard one bad word about him ever from anyone I've ever talked to, on the record or off.
5: Yeah, he's awesome. He is. But that's what made Quantum Leap what it is, because his genuinely nice personality came through to Sam Beckett.
2: I think he was the perfect person for that part. And it's uh, awesome that he still gets to do what he loves, which is acting today. And this one's from Barbara Noel.
1: Dear Albie and Heather, It must have been some inside joke about Scott's, oh boy, catchphrase, since Bunny replied with, no, I told you, it's a girl. Siding with Albie regarding the mother's reaction to getting the baby back. She's only an actress, Heather. She's doing what the director tells her to do. Listened to this podcast and was on the road myself. Really cool feeling. Since it was about two people being on the road, I felt like maybe I should have also been on the road while listening to the podcast about Honeymoon Express. We do have trains here but not traveling long distances. Besides, I don't have that kind of money. And this time I was on the road to go see the airplanes take off and land, but the guards did not let me see. It was a restricted area meant only for the travelers that were going to get on the planes. But despite that, I had a very good time at the airport. Anyway, Albie, I hear you ask about how many episodes has there been someone overweight. Did you mean just men? I don't think there was ever an overweight lady. Maybe I could be wrong, but recall back with me if you will. The Leapy in the episode Sam was the mortician, in the Goodnight Dear Heart episode, I feel like he was overweight, or even the lawyer in So Help Me God. So there are at least two other episodes with overweight guys. I had a laughing out loud moment when Sam pranked Al about Bunny stripping. I love the relationship that Sam and Al have. Look out, Heather. There will be more pranking in future episodes. I hope you will enjoy those as much as I do. Example, season four opener. I hope Albie knows the one I'm referring to. I mean, it was so funny when Sam says to Al, Bunny just stripped? Al. Oh, that's okay, Bunny stripped. Al's eyes open wide. She stripped? She stripped and you didn't tell me? My favorite laugh out loud moment from the episode slash season. I would go back just to watch and rewatch that moment. I am guessing Gotta Go Joe told Sam where the car was and said, Dope! Sorry, just paraphrasing. Don't remember the actual dialogue. Because wouldn't you, when being held at gunpoint, do or say what the gunman tells you to do or say? It's either that or getting killed. I just wanted to say welcome to Mr. Chris D. Philippus. I hope I spell your name right. I enjoyed the article you did. As Albi says, if that is any indication of where things are going with Mr. Philippus, I'm so looking forward to hearing more. And thank you for sharing the articles you do. Sincerely, and respectfully yours, Barbara Noel.
2: Chris is awesome.
5: We love having Mr. Philippus on our show.
2: Maybe Baby was a funny one. I like when there's funny ones. I hope there's a funny one coming up soon.
5: After the three-episode arc we just did, me too. Good opinions. Yeah, I'm glad you're catching up and going through our our episodes pretty quickly. This
2: one's from Leslie.
1: Dear Albie, Heather, and Hayden, Great recap. This episode was definitely to season 3 what MIA was to season 2, and I have to agree wholeheartedly with the proposition that MIA, along with parts 1 and 2 of The Leap Home, were the first trilogy of Quantum Leap. The tables are turned, and not for the first time, for our time-traveling duo. Sam is the one trying to alter his past, and Al must bear the all-too-familiar burden of upholding Project Quantum Leap's rule numero uno. I do have to, very respectfully, disagree with the coldness that was somehow perceived by one, or perhaps all of you. I'm sorry, but I don't remember which one. Not to worry, I'll be listening again, many times. On the contrary, what I heard in Al's tone during the bar scene, I know kid, I know, was a brotherly, almost paternal warmth stemming from years of friendship. My heart melts every time I watch that scene. I could skip the part where I attribute touching moments like this one to the fact that both Scott and Dean possessed a seasoned understanding of the relationship between Sam and Al right from day one of shooting. But hopefully by now you know me well enough to know that's not going to happen. As to the reason Sam leaped back to his farm in Elkridge, Indiana, while I firmly believe there was no force in the universe that could have prevented the next Einstein from going to college, I don't think it was cruel of God, time, fate, or whatever to place Sam in his 16-year-old self so that he, as well as others in his high school, could reap, no pun intended, the benefits of winning against their toughest rival, Bentleyville. Moreover, I agree with Sam's theory that he was being rewarded. However, I also agree with Al. He was right to tell Sam that the only thing Sam was accomplishing was making his family's present miserable. Al was also right when he told Sam that this was, as he put it, damn fair. Now that I think of it, it's possible that the perception of coldness comes from watching the scene when Sam tenders his heart-rending resignation and Al appears to be casually lighting his cigar after Sam runs off, collapsing under the weight of his agonizing despair. The reason I disagree with the assessment is that I can't tell you how many heart-to-heart conversation friends of mine, those who smoke, have had with me during which their words of wisdom were punctuated by the pause of a lighter, making contact with a cigarette. No matter how much I might have been hurting at the time, I never once mistook the gesture for callousness. As always, I mean no disrespect and hope that you see this as my innocuous attempt to offer veteran leapers' humble perspective. Finally. I couldn't send this email without mentioning one of my favorite comic relief moments of this episode, one that I think was 100% the idea of The Deliverer. Dean's shout-out to his longtime, unfortunately late as of 2009, friend Dennis Hopper. I get the feeling that was Dean's way of teasing Dennis for saying, well, that's the end of his career, when he found out that Dean was accepting a lead role in a TV series. Also, I have to give my own shout-out to the production staff for the excellent job they did on Scott's age makeup. Scott did an amazing job portraying Sam's father in addition to the exemplary performance he always gives us as Sam. The supporting cast, as well, was nothing short of stellar. Did you notice that the actress who played Thelma Louise Beckett, Sam's mother, was also in Oliver Stone's Born on the Fourth of July? Carolina Cava played Ron Kovic's mother in the film. It was great to see Olivia Burnett again. She was brilliant, as was David Newsom. I can't wait to hear the interview with him. Speaking of... Kudos to you, Albie, for achieving the dream you had since the start of this project, interviewing the one and only Scott Bakula. Can I just tell you how jealous I am? He's such an incredibly talented, appreciative, kind-hearted soul. I can only imagine how you must have felt by paraphrasing Stewie Griffin. You know, they say never meet your heroes, but they say I'm in because that was awesome. Hmm, there's that word again. Awesome. Your friend in time, Leslie. P.S. Praise goes to Hayden, of course, for helping to organize all of the interviews on the podcast. Sorry, mate. I couldn't figure out where to put this comment.
2: Thank you, Leslie. It was a dream come true talking to Scott, and it was amazing. And I've met a few of my heroes, and I wished I hadn't. But meeting Scott Bakula was not disappointing at all. It was awesome, amazing. Getting to know him, getting to know all about him.
5: I feel like you're going to break into song. I was about to. (laughs) But it, it was...
2: Hey, highlight of my life. I'm sure I'll be telling people that in the old age home one day.
5: And in defense of our previous episode, I don't think we ever thought Al was a cold person. But I think in the moment in the barn when Sam is trying to plan out what he's going to do, Al was just like, yeah, you can't do that. And I feel like that was cold of him I didn't think he was cold later on in the episode when Sam was having his meltdown but yeah it was just seemed a little weird in the barn but understandable because we just had the thing with Beth happen it wasn't uncalled for and I don't think he was in the wrong it just it was a necessary not as much cold but just matter of fact instead of I don't know but I, I'm nothing against Alan Sam like They're awesome and I love this show, but (laughs) I don't know, it makes me feel like it makes me feel bad because they're my fave TV duo, so. Well, that's the great thing about art
2: is there are so many different ways to interpret them and every person who watches, sees, reads something, sees it in a different way.
5: And that's why we have a podcast. Exactly. And that's why (laughs) we have feedback so
2: we can get more than just our opinions because it's important to find out what everybody thinks.
5: Right. Yeah. I I love our feedback section because when we sit here and record, we don't have an audience. We don't have that live feedback, so we don't really know until we get the feedback for the next episode what you guys think. So it's great to hear that and know that you guys are liking what we're doing or not liking what we're doing or hopefully more of the liking part.
2: Odd, possibly ironic little tidbit about me. The one section I didn't do so good on, on my finals, was interpreting art and literature. (laughs) And now that's what I do. Yeah. Think about that. I don't know what that says about standardized testing.
5: I have a whole nother.
2: (laughs) I'm sure we'll get to that episode (laughs) at some point.
5: Hey, we have an email from Aaron Moss. We haven't heard from Aaron Brotherhead Moss in a while. Oh, cool.
1: First, regarding my comments from your last episode, The Leap Home Part 1. LOL. Damn, this is a great show. Even during the recap, I was moved to tears. I agree with the casting for this episode. It was great casting. I like Albie's theory on Sam's brain being Swiss-cheesed. That's what I always thought. That's why sometimes the Leapy's memories or personalities overtake Sam's and explains what happens in Redacted for Heather's protection, but involves a certain assassination. I liked Albie's holodeck reference about Sam running in place. Regarding Heather's question about why Sam leapt into what he leapt into and why, leaping into Sam instead of another player, or leaping in after Hilda died, if you believe that there is some supreme being, the best answer is that, for instance, in Hilda's case, she was supposed to die. As far as leaping into Sam instead of some other teenager, maybe having Sam be Sam was the best way to get the intended outcome. If he leapt into Joe, random name, Maybe Joe couldn't have made enough of a difference to win the game, where Sam did. And sometimes it's best not to look too close at the strings in these things, otherwise it might just fall apart. As far as killing off all characters, Game of Thrones is a big one. As far as people not believing Sam, remember, he was a 16-year-old kid. A genius, but still a 16-year-old kid. I never noticed Scott runs differently. Now I'm going to have to watch for it. I think the look Sam gave Al at the pom-pom remark is that, remember, these girls are underage. While Al is a lecherous older man, making comments about underage girls might be a bit off-putting to Sam. I loved the interview with Scott. Great playing whatever instrument from Tiffany. Now for the newest episode. Another fantastic episode of Quantum Leap. Not as much to say about this episode, but still great. I wonder what Tom would say if Magic told him that he was really Sam and started telling him things about his past. Maggie is hot, though she was willing to put out at the drop of a hat or pants. Having watched this many times before, I don't know if I could see the signs of the spy within the camp or if I just remember from previous viewings. I liked Tom and Magic talking about Tom's recent trip home. And again, I wonder what Tom would have said if Sam came clean. And then, while on the mission, Sam finds who the spy was by finding the radio. If he could have pieced things together a little quicker, he would have saved the POWs and his brother. And speaking of POWs, poor Al. And the next leap in, a priest. Looks familiar, while Netflix played the boogie... the boogie... you know, that episode. Happy belated birthday, Albie. Aaron, Brotherhead, Moss.
2: Thank you, Aaron, Brotherhead, Moss thank you very much for redacting part of your email. I appreciate that (laughs) because everybody remember Heather hasn't seen past the episode we're talking about. What's the latest episode of Quantum Leap you've seen, Heather?
5: The Leap Home Part 2. Right.
2: You haven't seen the next one. Nope. Which on Netflix is the, well, we're not going to say it, but in real life, I guess DVDs is the best way to go with this one. The next episode will be about a priest.
5: See, my brain couldn't watch further than that and then talk back an episode. I can barely handle when you guys send in feedback from three episodes ago. <laughs> I'm like, wait, what? I don't remember that far ago. Like that, I can't.
2: And then Albie that's listened to the podcast three times since then. Reminds yeah, me. Then,
5: then he's got, you know, that one time where you said this and I'm like, I don't know what they're talking about. And Albie's going to be like, you said that this happened and this happened. And I'm like, oh, yeah. So...
2: I think it's really good to watch one episode at a time and the anticipation and and waiting and finding out little by little by little.
5: Albie has to read through the emails to make sure they're safe. We do a lot to make sure that I don't get spoiled, but it helps that I tell people ahead of time. Usually, like, if we talk about the Quantum Leap podcast, I'm like, but I haven't seen it. So don't tell me. So it's really awesome that you took the time to redact your statement. And it actually kind of makes it even funnier. And
2: I know what he's talking about. So that's perfect. (laughs) For everybody from now on, that's the perfect way to do it. Just say, Albie, you know what I'm talking about.
5: Because I do. (laughs) I like that. But it was a great email. And we must talk about a lot because he had a lot of points to bring up. Very good points. (laughs) Yeah. At least we know somebody's paying attention out there, right? I feel like he's got a notebook while he's listening. Like, I got to make a comment about that. (laughs) I thought it would be cool if Sam tried to talk to his brother and be like, listen, it's Sam. But I think there was too much going on. Like, they didn't really have time to sit down and be like, listen, I'm a time traveler.
2: Recently, I found out a lot of times the way writers do something is they come up with an ending and then they write the episode to get to that ending. That makes sense. So I think the reason why everything happened the way it did was for that ending. And even though it sucks that we lost Maggie and...
5: I knew she was going to die.
2: The POWs didn't get saved.
5: I didn't know that was going to happen. But when Maggie said, I'll do anything for a Pulitzer, I was like, you're going to (laughs) die. Like, as horrible as that sounds. So you weren't even attached. Well, no, not really. See, I was because
2: um, I was blinded. Dude. (laughs) I was blinded by...
5: I can see past the camera lenses. Yeah. Yeah.
2: Very interesting point that Aaron Moss made about Al looking at the cheerleaders that are supposed to be underage. And that thought didn't cross my mind because, of course, like we say over and over again, the actors that play these high school people are in their 30s, maybe, maybe 40s. But uh, if they are like 15, 16, and Dean Stockwell's probably in his 50s at the time, I could see why that's weird. And Sam would give Al a look like that. But of course, the actresses are in their 30s, so never crossed my mind once.
1: This one's from Bobby Bailey. Along with my compliments on an excellent episode, I say this. I used to think of the leaping process as Sam leaping into another person's body. However, a previous emailer said that the idea of Sam's soul possessing another body is disturbing. Although I believe that Sam's body does the leaping, I agreed with his point and thought, how do I think of the leaping process now? In my rethinking, I came to this conclusion. Sam leaps into the aura of another person each time. He and the Leapy switch places in time and switch auras as well. This is why the Leapy looks like Sam to the people in the present as shown in the waiting room scenes of a few episodes. For example, when Sam made his first leap, his body went to 1956 and his aura somehow went to the waiting room. In that process, Tom Stratton leaped into Sam's aura in that room. Essentially, Sam and Tom switch places in time and switch auras. Once Sam completed his mission, he leapt out. Then Tom leapt back into his own time and his own aura. Then, the next leapy went into Sam's aura in the waiting room. And so the process goes for each leap. That is my new take on quantum leaping. Also, I say to Albie, nice touch on playing the villain in that impossible dream episode, Need You Now. Again, thanks to both of you for an excellent podcast, which I faithfully listen to. Your friend in leaping Bobby Bailey.
2: Thank you, Bobby Bailey
5: <laughs> Is that i how did it? I don't know.
2: <laughs> you shouldn't have done that.
5: yeah, that's probably what it sounded like.
2: Thank you for your email, Bobby Bailey.
5: Now, you sound like bat, Dad. <laughs> 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 um, thank you for your take on the aura switching. It's so funny because this, I think we've been talking about this since the first episode of the podcast. And it's still a topic that we talk about today. And I feel like it's almost one of those things that the writers and creators of the show would just be like, we didn't, you think more about it than we did. (laughs) But
2: basically, they want to tell us that. Don't worry about it. It's a story. (laughs) right?
5: Stop thinking so much.
2: (laughs) But you have to think about it because To accept this as a real world, which is what we do when we watch it and enjoy it, we have to get into the story. We have to tell ourselves how it works so we can enjoy what we're watching, at least with me.
5: I think my brain's really simple. And it's like, (laughs) that's Sam as a chick. I don't know. But the aura thing makes sense. And Hayden has schooled me on it.
2: Well, I absolutely agree with Bobby's take on it.
5: Right. That's
2: my best understanding. And... After talking with everybody I can that is responsible for making up the universe of Quantum Leap, they have not told me anything that would disprove that theory.
5: That's because they're like, I don't know. Now, years if you ago.
2: read Netflix description of Quantum Leap or other descriptions of Quantum Leap,
5: I don't think Netflix, the person who wrote the descriptions, has ever watched the show.
2: Yeah, that's got to be the reason. <laughs>
5: You, ever, you guys, that, that'll that be your homework for this podcast. You have to, next time you watch an episode of Quantum Leap, read the description of the show.
2: It, it always says, Sam Beckett leaps into the body of another, and you're like, well, Hayden told me different, so I don't know how to feel about this.
5: <laughs>
6: so but
5: Then why does he look like a man wearing a dress? I
2: think what's going to happen is eventually me and Hayden will have to write a book together.
5: I have no words for that. We'll have an introduction by you. <laughs> It'll say, I have no words for this book <laughs> No, I just, I don't know I don't know how I feel about you and Hayden writing a book mm. Maybe with the help of Christy Philippus
2: Wow, wow, yeah, he could be my <laughs> ghostwriter But we could also put his name in there I could just assign the two to Maybe write my Chris, book Maybe
5: Christy Philippus and Hayden should write the book
2: But how do I I put my picture on the jacket cover? No? I don't know. Okay, we'll work on it. We'll think about this. (laughs) And we have a voicemail from Leslie.
8: Ooh. Hello, Albie, Heather, and Hayden. It's Leslie. And if you're wondering where the Rhode Island accent is, I got lucky. I don't have one. But the reason I'm calling is I wanted to talk about the episode, The Leap Home, Part 2, Vietnam. Actually, I just finished rereading Pulitzer, and then I watched M.I.A., and... Leave home part one, leave home part two together and I I mean I've seen these episodes hundreds of times and I never cried as hard as I did this time. I mean when you consider this episode, I think of two things brotherhood and sacrifice because that's actually what Al did for Sam. And when you're in the military, people in your life become like your family. They become your brothers, they become your sisters. And Al made the ultimate sacrifice. He cost himself another two years in Vietnam so that Sam could have his brother back. It's, it's pretty heartrending. It's a beautiful episode. And I hope that you guys didn't see, not that the Ghanian didn't see any of the coldness that was somehow perceived in the Leap Home 1. Cause Al was, he didn't say Sam cost them the game to Bentleyville. He said, you guys, But I I hope I don't sound like I'm picking on you because I love this show and I love the podcast and you guys are awesome. So there's that word again. Hopefully this didn't sound too ridiculous, but that trilogy, along with reading that novel again, it's incredibly emotional. If you guys haven't read Pulitzer, I highly, highly recommend it. It explains why that novel fits so well with the series. All right. Thank you for listening to me
2: ramble. Take care. Bye. It's nice to hear her voice. She has a very lovely voice. I have not yet read Pulitzer. Hayden just read it and he told me all about it. I think he reread it. We have it. We own it. It's on our list. Right now I'm reading The Naked Truth by Jean-Pierre Dorliac. And I'm reading Quantum Leap Independence by John Peel, And I have Search and Rescue to read by Melissa Crandall. So after that, I will totally read Pulitzer. And I'm looking forward to it. I don't know if I could handle it right now after just seeing MIA and the Leap Home Part One and Two. I need a little time.
5: It's definitely an emotional journey. I'm 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 very sorry about the cold thing, Leslie. <laughs> I, I feel like it wasn't I, I I didn't mean it to to come off anything against against Al, but but I'm sorry. <laughs>
2: Well, see, that's that's it. You heard that, and I heard uh, that she loves the show. It's a great show. So it all depends what you get out of something, you know.
5: Oh, no, no. I And I love having Leslie as part of our team. Oh, she, absolutely. Absolutely. I love the feedback and her take on everything.
2: Keep it coming. And thank you for the voicemail. There are many ways to leave feedback for everyone at the Quantum Leap Podcast. You can go to quantumleappodcast.com and check us out. You can send us an email or an mp3, an audio file of some sort, to quantumlypodcast at gmail.com.
5: You can visit us on all the social media platforms. We've got Facebook with facebook.com slash quantumleappodcast, Twitter at quantumleappod, and Instagram, quantumleappodcast.
2: And uh, you can leave us a voicemail like Leslie did. Our phone number is 707-847-6682. And we are on Patreon, patreon.com slash podcast. If you haven't checked it out there, check it out. It's really nice.
5: And thank you to our current patrons, Tom Quinn, Donald Summerlin, and Nancy Quinn.
2: Yay, a new patron.
5: Yay. Thank
2: you so much. And now it's time for Hayden's segment.
3: Quantum Leap is a unique show, in the sense that, being an anthology, it focuses on the adventures of just one character and his sidekick, with every adventure being in a different place, time, and with a new set of characters that he interacts with. Even though this gives the chance to see the two main characters grow, learn, and evolve through the series, the majority of the supporting characters are never seen or heard from again. And when we've spent an episode getting attached to these characters, seeing them interact with Sam and learning about their lives and how they've been changed, usually for the better, that can feel like a slap in the face. This is why I really enjoy the Quantum Leap novels and comic books, as many of them actually do have Sam and Al revisit some of the characters and situations from the show and continue their stories. One serial story can be found in the Quantum Leap comic number nine, up against a stone wall in which Sam leaps into Stephanie from Goodnight, Dear Heart, just as she's being released from a 12-year stint in prison for killing Hiller. Stephanie had gained a great deal of fame by taking photographs of what happened in prison, and these were to be shown in an exhibition. In her position as a photographer, Sam befriends a transgender model who's badly beaten, and because nobody is willing to take the case, Sam does a photo shoot of her to give her a voice. Sam is also told by Al that the Stonewall riots will happen that night. And because he's obviously unable to stop the riots, Sam instead takes pictures of the events taking place to provide evidence of police wrongdoing and to make the public aware of what we would now call the LGBTIQ community we're facing. Another serial story that comes to mind is L. Elizabeth Storm's novel, Angels Unaware, in which we learn that Teresa Bruckner from Another Mother has hit rock bottom. She's on the run and is just days from being murdered. Teresa has nobody to turn to, despite being stalked by a crazy lady named Anhala, who claims to be her guardian angel. But Teresa no longer believes in angels, because Al never lived up to his promise to one day return to her. However, at the recommendation of one of her university professors and some pushing from Anhela, Teresa decides to spend a few days at a convent to get her head together. Her professor is also a priest who will be presiding over the services at the convent. That is, until he's bounced a few years into the future and replaced by Sam, who now has the mission to save Teresa's life and restore her faith. The Leap Home Part 2 is the third and final episode of the Holy Trinity of Quantum Leap. The casual viewer might not have picked up on this, but it is unfortunate that this episode left one major question unanswered. In MIA, Al stated that he was repatriated in 1973, but at the end of The Leap Home Part 2, Al shrugs off Sam's cries that Al could have been free with a, what the hell, I get repatriated in five years. Wait, the leap date was April 1970. Five years after that would have been 1975. Did something happen during the leap to tragically prevent Al from being liberated from the hell he was put through as a POW by the VC for another two years? I discussed this on the Facebook page. Karen Funk Bloker had always interpreted this as Al saying he was imprisoned for a total of five years after his initial capture. This is entirely possible, but you have to be liberal with the timing. In MIA, which was set in April 1969, we found out that Al had already been missing for two years. So if he was repatriated in 1973, that's actually six years he was imprisoned for. Although there is a little leeway depending on what point in the year he was actually captured and repatriated. But given Al's mournful, what the hell attitude, I have to agree with Aaron Watson that Al is well aware of having made a sacrifice and that he did actually end up in prison for an extra two years. So the question that The Leap Home Part 2 leaves us with is, what exactly happened in this episode to tragically change Al's fate? Now, like I said, it can be interpreted that Al was just talking about his total time as a POW and that someone simply stuffed up in the writing. But we Leapers like to come up with in-universe explanations. A real gem of a novel is another by L. Elizabeth Storm, Pulitzer, which, despite being non-canon, serves as the leap home part three. Sam leaps into a naval hospital in 1975, the very same hospital that a Lieutenant John Doe, later revealed to be Al, has been brought to immediately following his return to the United States. He's suffering from post-traumatic stress disorder, and worse, is under investigation under suspicion of treason. Sam, as Lieutenant Calavici's doctor, must try to help young Al work through his issues, which are magnified when the news is broken to him that Beth has remarried. At the same time, Sam has to try to clear Al's name, even though his interference could have disastrous consequences for Admiral Calavici and the entire Quantum Leap project. Meanwhile, a curious journalist has been given the task of writing an article about Vietnam and starts investigating into the circumstances surrounding the death of one of her mentors and friends, Maggie Dawson. It turns out that Maggie was not actually posthumously awarded with the Pulitzer for her photo of Al and the POWs, even though the photograph itself did win the prize. Rather, the true nature of her death was covered up, reported as an accident at the base, and the military took credit for the photograph. The explanation offered in Pulitzer as to why the timeline changes created a two-year extension of incarceration for Al is that in the original history, Maggie Dawson didn't go with Tom and his crew on the POW rescue mission and so didn't take the Pulitzer Prize-winning photograph. In the new timeline, the photograph of POW Al became so famous and widespread that even the North Vietnamese found out about it. As such, they came to the mistaken conclusion that the surveillance of the Americans and their allies was much better than it actually was. And so Al's captors did a much better job of camouflaging their POW camps and moved them around a lot more often, thereby making rescue missions more difficult. And thus poor Al was held prisoner for an extra two years. Pulitzer has some very emotional moments that were very well-written and really captured Sam and Al's character traits. I could easily picture these emotional scenes playing out in my head due to the brilliant acting we've seen from Dean Stockwell and Scott Bakula throughout the television series. I also liked how even though there were really two separate main stories, one being Sam helping young Al and the other being the journalist's investigation, as well as a third side story at the project, everything tied together beautifully. So, can Sam help young Al sort through his PTSD? Will Al's name be cleared? Will Maggie Dawson ever get the Pulitzer she died trying to get? And just what happened to Donna Alisi's father, Colonel Wojohowicz, when he went to Vietnam? Read Pulitzer to find out. But I've gotten sidetracked. Let's get back to the episode at hand. The Leap Home Part 2, Vietnam. As I said, I view this episode as the final part of an amazing trilogy. If I have to summarise this trilogy in one word, I would have to say grief. I don't mean that as an insult, because the episodes and the acting are brilliant. The word grief is appropriate because if you watch the three episodes back to back, you can see both Sam and especially Al going through the stages of grief the five stages are denial anger bargaining depression and acceptance although they do not necessarily occur in that order mia is the grief roller coaster for al going through at least four of these stages on the whole surprisingly simultaneously it's clear that up to that point al had never really gotten over losing beth and the wave of emotion can be explained by the wounds being opened so suddenly by Sam leaping into San Diego on April Fool's Day, 1969. Denial. After Sam finds out that Beth is Al's wife and tries to remind Al that they can't change their own lives, Al refuses to accept it. No, I don't know it. Anger. As the episode progresses, Al gets progressively more snappy with Sam for not changing things and doesn't hold back showing his anger towards Dirk and, if you look between the lines, especially towards himself for choosing to go to war when he could have stayed with his wife and been happy. Bargaining. The entire episode seems to have Al bargaining, trying to find some way, any way possible, to try and stop Beth from losing hope that he's alive. In fact, he was so preoccupied with this, it was all that he had Ziggy doing. Trying to run scenarios, seeing what had the best chance of achieving his goal. That he did not have any time to do anything else. Depression. In MIA, we see Al going down a slippery slope. From a happy-go-lucky comic relief character to a disheveled shell of a man. But we don't see him give up hope, even up to the very end pleading with Beth to sense his presence and to not give up on him. I feel that this leap was extremely necessary for Al, as it appears from his actions in MIA that he never actually had the chance to deal with his grief properly. Returning from Vietnam, having to deal with his PTSD, jumping from bed to bed and marriage to marriage and putting all his time and energy into Project Quantum Leap. One might even argue that the reason it appears Al has done everything under the sun is because he was constantly trying to distract himself from his grief. But it wouldn't be fair for Al to be the only one having to go through all these life lessons. In The Leap Home Part 1, it's Sam's turn. Denial. Believing and constantly trying to reassure himself that he had leapt back to his family home to save his father's and brother's lives and to prevent Katie from marrying a wife beater despite Al's insistence that he's just there to spend some quality time with his departed loved ones and win the basketball game. It even got to the point where Sam was sounding delusional. Considering what they had just gone through with Beth, and the fact that Al was probably still somewhat depressed, Al showed a great deal of maturity and common sense, trying to prevent Sam from being hurt and to not give him false hope. Anger. Effectively telling GTFW that he's quitting and ranting about it not being fair that he can't save the people that he loves. Bargaining, trying to convince his father and mother to change their lifestyles so that John would live longer. And later making a deal with Tom to crawl into a deep bunker on the day of his death in exchange for winning the game. Depression, realizing that he's not doing anything to change his family lives except making their present miserable and running off in tears acceptance, saying goodbye to his dad in the last few seconds of the basketball game, knowing that this is likely the last time that he'll ever see him again. We also get the first inkling that Al is coming to accept his life without Beth also. He himself says that it wasn't meant to be. Of course, being a trilogy, we can't have everything be wrapped up in the second part. And so when Sam finds out that Tom, the only member of his family that he truly believed he could save, still dies in Vietnam, he's so focused on Tom that it could be argued that when he leapt, he willed himself right to Tom's side at a time when Tom needed him most. This brings up another good point. Throughout the Vietnam leap, it's not really clear exactly what Sam's mission is. If Sam really did control where he landed, then one could argue that his mission definitely was to save Tom, unless this was another lesson that Sam had to learn. And let's face it, GTFW is not afraid of testing Sam. That some things just might not be meant to be. Even Al says that the mission might not be to save Tom, but rather to make sure that the platoon's missions succeed. And Sam is adamant that he will not accept that. One has to wonder if GTFW really did want to mess with the timeline as much as it ended up being messed with. Originally, Tom died. This time, Maggie Dawson, the Chu Hoi and all the Viet Cong soldiers in the ambush died. Can you imagine the massive ripple effects from all these changes? And realistically speaking, in the grand scheme of things, ensuring that the missions of Tom's platoon succeeding don't affect the outcome of the war. So would GTFW really be so concerned with this? My theory is that Sam's mission all along was actually to ensure that Maggie Dawson got her much-deserved Pulitzer Prize. Even if she did only receive it posthumously, that would be enough to be considered a success as it completed Maggie's life's work. And it is immediately after the revelation of Maggie's photo receiving the prize that Sam leapt. Okay, after being thanked by his brother too. But hey, that could just be a bonus. It is also in the final few minutes of the episode that we finally get confirmation that Al has indeed accepted his fate. In MIA, Al clearly goes through at least the first four stages of grief, and he's probably still depressed in The Leap Home Part 1. In The Leap Home Part 2, Al has the choice to lead Sam to the POWs so that he can liberate them, or lead Sam to the village where he can prevent the ambush that led to Tom's death. It is at this stage that Al shows a great deal of maturity, realising that if he helped himself, he would be hurting others, something that he nearly had to deal with in MIA as well. And he gets some happiness by helping others and making them happy. When he says, what the hell, I get repatriated in five years anyway, it shows that he now completely accepts what became of himself during the Vietnam War and that is what made him who he is today. This jaw-droppingly brilliant trilogy, like a roller coaster of emotions, made our heads spin, made us cry, at times made us sick, and in the end made us extremely happy to have had the experience of watching this masterpiece of fiction. But when Sam leaps, it's back to the status quo. This time with Sam in the guise of a Catholic priest. Let us pray that Sam and Al are not personally affected by this one. Spoiler alert, one of them is. Oh boy.
5: That was an awesome segment, Hayden.
2: Makes me want to read Pulitzer even more now. Yeah. It's on the list. It's on the list.
5: It's cool that it goes together.
2: It really is. I can't wait to go more in depth into the Quantum Leap novels in the future of the Quantum Leap podcast.
5: Yeah, because when it's all over, then we'll have something else to do. (laughs) I was going to say watch, and then I'm like, no, read. I think they call it reading. I know. I just meant like.
2: We have to figure out what to do to stretch it out until the reboot comes out. So books, and then comic books, and then we'll review some action figures, hopefully.
5: They made me scared about the reboot, though, because I don't think it would be as homely as... We'll wait and see.
2: You never know. If Scott will do a cameo in it, then we know it's okay. If he gives his approval. Heather, do you have any news?
5: Yeah, there's some news. Well... There's some new news. You were on Hydrate Level 4 recently with Peter Vunisak.
2: He's an awesome person. We had a great long conversation and he did an amazing edit and he made me sound good and I appreciate that. And uh, we talk all about the Back to the Future trilogy. I was the final guest out of nine people that he did for a three-part podcast on Back to the Future. And uh, it was really fun and I enjoyed being on his show. Hopefully I get to work with him again in the future.
5: That's awesome. A lot of people don't know that we don't really sound good. It's just lots of editing.
2: Lots and lots of editing.
5: Make us sound smart. I don't know if you watch Unbreakable, uh, Kimmy unbreakable. Schmidt, but John Cullum was in an episode.
2: From Catch a Falling Star and the director of All Americans. When we were watching, I was like, is that is that John Cullum? And uh, in the credits, it was.
5: That was when they were doing that musical number at the end, right?
2: <laughs> yeah. He played Daddy's Daddy. That's all I'm going to say. But go check out unbreakable kimmy schmidt that show
5: is ridiculously funny and something cool that recently happened in the world of science they're creating these touchable holograms they're like super super tiny but there was a video i don't know if you watched the video i did and they're really really tiny but still touchable holograms it's pretty cool
2: you got to start somewhere. Eventually, a few years from now, there'll be life-size touchable holograms, photons in force fields, and everything will be fine.
5: It'll be like a jazz bar
2: and a jazz singer, right? And maybe one of the holograms will gain consciousness and run a bar. Yeah. Never know. Weird. And sing really (laughs) cool
5: songs. (laughs) I don't know where we're getting all these ideas.
6: (laughs) That
2: were played at our wedding.
5: Oh, and Airwolf is coming out on Blu-ray.
2: Another Donald P. Belisario show. I think it's the one he did before Quantum Leap, so... So, there's hope, right? There's hope. Tales of the Golden Monkey were in there somewhere. If Airwolf comes out on Blu-ray... Now, it's not coming out on Region 1. It's coming out on other regions, so... If you are in a Region 1 area, you have to figure out how to watch those Region 2 Blu-rays in our area. It's still silly that they do that. But I'll take Quantum Leap on Blu-ray in any region.
5: I think because of music copyright laws. Mm-hmm. <sighs> I don't know. Even if it
2: doesn't mean that we're going to get Quantum Leap on Blu-ray anytime soon, it's still a great opportunity to watch another Donald Belisario show. And in the first two seasons, Deborah Pratt is an awesome actress.
5: <laughs> I love that you're just like, and then in the first two seasons, Deborah Pratt.
2: <laughs> that's all you have to really say. That's, that, mm, Deborah Pratt. <laughs> that's worth buying the set right there, just to see Deborah Pratt.
5: Wow, I didn't know she acted in those. Yeah, that's awesome.
2: it's, it's really good. There's four seasons. So the other last two seasons, you don't really have to watch.
5: It's funny because I'm like a huge fan of her just because it's like girl power in the the TV industry.
2: Yeah. Watch the first two seasons of Airwolf on Blu-ray and uh, you'll have the complete set. And then no more Deborah Pratt, so the rest of them are blank.
5: (laughs) That's a thing now. They just release five discs, but only. Well, you, you put on 11 disc
2: set. They don't say 11 disc set with content on them. You're know, like, 11 discs. Wow.
5: Firefly should do that.
2: <laughs> <laughs> Season All two.
5: five seasons. <laughs>
2: <laughs> I'd buy it. Blank, blank Blu-rays, I'd buy it. It said Firefly on it. <laughs> and this would have been you know, just videos of Joss going, and this would have been the episode where they celebrated a holiday, and it was really cute because...
5: That actually pr- would probably sell for a lot of money. <laughs> <laughs> <I'd> buy, <laughs> take my
2: money. Take my money.
5: Someone should present that idea. <laughs>
2: That's a good idea. Just <laughs> just you get writers and the producers just to sit down and go, and we'll get yeah, an idea about this one.
5: <laughs> I'd like have the Firefly actress in the background like, woo, <laughs> <laughs> is being goofy, that people would pay for that.
2: That would be great. Yeah. Thank you for that news, Heather. Do you have any trivia?
5: There were some awards that were won for this episode. Michael Zinberg, the co-executive producer, won the Director's Guild Award for this episode. Michael Watkins won an Emmy for cinematography for this episode. Dean Stockwell was nominated for an Emmy for his acting in this episode. This episode was shot not in Vietnam or anywhere exotic, but instead 60 miles outside of L.A.
2: Thanks for that trivia, Heather.
5: You're welcome. Not much on this episode, but I think there was enough emotion in this episode that we're okay.
7: I'm Christopher DeFilippis, and it's time for the Quantum Leap Radio Sightings, where I tell you about the vintage and collectible radios that appear on Quantum Leap. This time out, we're talking about the Leap Home Part 2, Vietnam. And, irony of ironies, there are no radios in this, an episode where the main plot hinges on a radio transmission. It does feature a military communication station, but my insanity doesn't extend to identifying those. So we'll dip into the archives, and what better place to start than at the beginning? Quantum Leap's premiere episode, Genesis, featured no less than three vintage radios. And the first is in one of Sam's very first scenes, on the nightstand when he wakes up as Tom Stratton. The problem is, I have no idea what kind of radio this is. My gut tells me that it's a Panasonic. My friends on the Antique Radio Forum didn't know either, and their guesses included brands like National or Lloyd's. About the only consensus seems to be that it's probably a mid-60s to early-70s Japanese transistor set, and there's no way one of those would have been in Tom Stratton's bedroom on September 13th, 1956. The remaining two radios show up in the Stratton's kitchen, mysteriously switching places on top of Peg's stove throughout the episode. The first one is a 1959 Philco G749X, a white clock radio that's ugly in the special way that only clock radios can be. And though this tube set is closer to Sam's actual leap date, no cigar, it's still anachronistic. Time goes further askew when the Philco is intermittently replaced by a 1965 General Electric C-1478D, another ugly clock radio. The GE model even gets an insert shot as Peg listens to the news, where you can see the words solid state, meaning it's also a transistor set. So all the radios featured in Genesis are anachronistic, but I'm willing to let it slide. These radios are more for proof of concept than historical accuracy. At the Leap Back Con 09, Don Belisario said he wanted the boomers watching QL to see and remember all the neat old stuff that was around when they were growing up. And getting a few old radios to dress the set was an easy way to do that. The lingering insert shot on the GE radio almost screams, Hey, look at me. Remember these? If you want to get a look at these and the other radios that appeared on Quantum Leap, just go to the Quantum Leap radio sightings page on my website at theflipside.com. Once there, click on the Quantum Leap podcast link and look for the radio dial. Maybe you can even help me identify the pesky unknown radio in Genesis, and a few others that I'll be telling you about in future podcasts. Until then, this is your Quantum Leap radio guru, tuning out.
2: Any other thoughts you had on The Leap Home Part 2 or just in the general story arc of Quantum Leap up until this point?
5: I feel really bad for both of them. Al made a good point in Leap Home Part 1 that like, they're getting this really op- awesome opportunity to relive parts of their life in these three episodes, right? But it's got to be heartbreaking. And these are three rough episodes. I'm kind of glad that at least I'm hoping that the next one's a lighthearted episode.
2: Kid gets hit with a train.
5: No, I'm sorry, I can't do it anymore. <laughs> I <No>. quit. <laughs> I'm kidding. Done. Kidding, kidding, kidding. kidding. Like, I, I, don't know.
0: You want some of this? It'll help your nerves.
4: No, oh, thanks. I'm, uh, I'm fine. I'm fine now. Liquid courage. I'm afraid I'm going to need all of that I can get today. I baptized that boy Frank, and I watched him grow up. Now I got to bury him. Twelve years old. I guess I should have seen it coming an accident how, how could you see it coming
6: it was, come on frank we both know it wasn't an accident the kid's been walking those tracks all his life he didn't fall in front of that train
1: i uh just wanted to express my sympathy uh, to you on
0: this tragic day still i
5: see don't, don't.
0: don't make a circus out of this let this woman grieve for her
5: son <laughs> come on,
4: what am i doing here <laughs> Your name is Francis Giuseppe Pistano. Look, but you just y- get y- to the point? Is it to prevent a murder? Uh, yeah. How did you know that? I think the kid that Father Mac married today was murdered. So if I'm here to stop that, I'm a little late.
0: Uh, Ziggy says there's an
4: 86.2% chance that this Father Mac is going to be murdered in the next 36 hours.
0: Bless me, Father, for I have sinned. It's been 10 years since my last confession. Since then, I've killed two people. Make that three.
4: Uh, don't do this. I swore I would never have anything to do with you again. But you can't do this. He's done too much. He's helped too many people.
5: Don't look at me like that. No, I I, I like the lighthearted episodes. But up until this point, we really haven't had something so profound. So I really love these episodes because you get to see more Of our main characters. And, you know, I always talk about how much I love that part of it. But I think I need a break from the emotional roller coaster here. It's understandable, right? (laughs) Yeah, really, really, really good episodes, though. These This trilogy was amazing.
2: I wholeheartedly agree with you. When I think of Quantum Leap, besides probably Genesis and Jimmy, I think about these three episodes a lot.
5: So there's not much else to look forward to. Nope
2: the rest of the <laughs> the rest of the Blu-rays are blank.
5: <laughs> well, that about wraps it up for the
2: Leap Home Part Two, Vietnam. I'd like to thank our guests, David Newsom and Andrea Thompson. It was great having them on the show. I think it added a lot to this episode.
5: Yeah, that's really cool that we got them on the show because they're huge players in this episode.
2: Have a guy crush on one and a crush on the other. So
5: bromance.
2: Yep. I think there's a little bit of bromance. Maybe not. He was kind of busy, but, you know, on my part anyway.
5: (laughs) You're like, okay.
3: (laughs) And until next time, I'm Albie.
5: And I'm Heather. And I can't wait to take a leap of faith.
3: Thank you for joining us for this episode of the Quantum Leap Podcast, hosted by Albert Burge and Heather Burge, with contributions from Hayden McQueenie, Jill Arroway, Suzanne Smiley, and Christopher DeFilippis. Go to QuantumLeapPodcast.com for all your Quantum Leap Podcast needs. Join us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram for special behind-the-scenes content and to find out when a new episode is available. To support the show, please go to patreon.com slash quantumleappodcast. That's patreo ncom com The Quantum Leap Podcast is edited by Albie, John Buchanan, and Juan Murrow, with voice talent provided by John Buchanan, Juan Murrow, Hayden McQueenie, Tawny Fennerin, Suzanne Smiley, Mac Jackson, and Peter Bonasac. The production assistant is Jesse Newman. The executive producer of The Quantum Leap Podcast is Albert Burge. Juan Murrow and Hayden McQueenie are the co-executive producers. The thoughts and opinions expressed on this podcast are those of the individual and do not necessarily represent or reflect those of The Quantum Leap Podcast, its partners or affiliates. The Quantum Leap Universe and all it contains is the property of Belisarius Productions and Universal Television. The Quantum Leap Podcast is not affiliated with Belisarius Productions or Universal Television and no copyright infringement is intended. The Quantum Leap Podcast is a Barron Space production.
2: Well, but you're right, yes and yes. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So did you just say yes and mm-hmm.
5: this episode has
2: a lot of different things going on in it.
5: This episode, this episode has a lot of things. I'm assuming, or like if not, Siri, I did not call you.
2: What do you say, okay, Google or okay, Siri?
5: I don't know, but I didn't say it. Stay hey. out of my conversation. Okay, Siri. Hey, Siri.
2: Um, Do you like Quantum
5: Leap? This is about you, not me. Hey, Siri, what's zero divided by zero?
0: Imagine that you have zero cookies and you split them evenly among zero friends. How many cookies does each person get? See, it doesn't make sense. And Cookie Monster is sad that there are no cookies. And you are sad that you have no friends.
5: (laughs) (laughs) That's funny. Uh Uh-huh. That's the the new burn, Siri.
2: That's pretty good. Um, what were we talking about?
5: I don't know. Siri interrupted. How rude. We touched on that in the episode where he was fish. Was that any, the one where he was named? The college student one. He's named fish, I think. Was
2: he named fish? I never remember that. That's Abe Vigoda.
5: <laughs> wasn't it, he was named something weird. What did you think
2: of the mirror shot in this episode? <laughs> Dogfish. Dog, Dogfish. pig. Dog, fish, pig. Piggy Suey. He played
5: Piggy Suey, right? No. Fish. Hey, A No. Duck. Shut up. Tia Carrera. That that was really cool that she was so supportive of him.
2: Didn't Tia Oh Tia Carrera. That's like Hey Siri. Tia Carrera. You say Tia Carrera.
5: Tia Carrera. No. <laughs> She's just interrupting. Story? Maybe when I said the the story about Hey Story. That's it. That's it. some
6: news for a story.
2: Thank you. Thank you. No. We're recording. Podcast mode. Podcast mode.
5: And mine doesn't do that. Okay, She's ready? a good Siri. Yeah.
2: Rise of the machines.
5: Your Siri doesn't like quantum leap.
2: No. Yours does. Okay. It's cool to find out about Babylon 5 and more. It's It was cool to find out a little bit more about Babylon 5.
5: Oh, Babylon. 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 <laughs> right. Yeah. I, I love our feedback section because when we sit here and record, we don't have Pants an audience. <laughs> <laughs> the secrets of Quantum Leap. <laughs>
1: Daddy's boy, he's got a daddy that he
2: brings such joy.
1: My daddy's tall and sweet, like a candy cane. And when we walk down the street, we refuse to explain how a daddy's boy and a daddy's boy's daddy and a daddy's
4: boy's
6: daddy's daddy could love each other so.